Welcome to Kick Out 299. I am Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. Um, We are back together after Rachel's break away from podcasting. I'm really excited to be on with them. It feels like 116 years since we've actually recorded something together. So this is kind of funny. I I had to check my mic levels again. And I was like, wait, how do I do this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know it was really weird. Oh God. I'm happy for it. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. I'm super stoked that you're here. I'm really glad that we're going to be able to make this happen at the end of the year. Cause we're going to talk about a couple of things on our end of the year episode. We are actually going to do, I am Noah part three together, which I think is really important. That was really the episode that, as we've said multiple times, started it all for us, I think. Um, in terms of what we were going to be able to do with our project. So we're really excited to be able to do that together. It's an important continuing episode for us and an important piece of why we wanted to do this work. So yeah, we're going to get into I Am Noah uh, part three, the the jakening, if you you will. Um, We are also going to do our end of year lists. I think that people who have been listening to us for a long time could probably shout out most of the things that we're going to talk about. And perhaps if you listen to Talking Triple Crown's um, end of year, you you might have some spoilers there for, for either of us, really. But... I think it'll be good to review some of the things that are on our lists. Um, And we also want to, at the top here, talk about some important things, uh, maybe some hard things, but I think some things that won't even necessarily be that surprising if you've been following along with the kind of year we've had. Um, But going into uh, January 2024, Kickout and Talking Triple Crown are going to be on hiatus. And this was a decision that wasn't made um, lightly by any means. Um, We have agonized over this decision together for a long time. Um, As we've alluded to in our tweets on the Kickout Twitter page, um, we have just had a hell of a 2023, um, a lot of changes going on in our personal lives, a lot of job stuff, um, and we have to just pivot and take care of some of those things and um, make sure that those things are taken care of so this work continues to be fun and just, you know, and have enough time to do it, really. Um, but we also started to really think about what we want these projects to look like. And I know um, you and I, Rachel, had this kind of like last breakthrough um in watching actually H Bomber guys yeah. um big video essay on uh YouTube plagiarism which um was interesting for us not in this like, I mean the entire video is interesting and I recommend everyone that's you know listening to us go watch that video even if you don't know the players or H Bomber guy himself you need to watch that video however um it's the fact that H Bomber guy like his full-time job is is making his videos. I mean, like he doesn't really even drop that many videos because he puts so much time into each one of his videos. So we're really doing a lot of thinking into what we want our art to look like and feel like. And there's so many projects that you and I are really excited about doing. Um, We just need to be able to structure them so that we have the time to put into the sourcing, the research, Rachel's translations, Kana's translations. Um, So I think when we come back in 2024, things will look different, but um, I think that we will be, I don't know, like, I don't even know how to describe what I want to say next, but 
Um, I think that the projects will feel um, even just tighter and, and better than what we've been able to put out because we're really going to be focusing our energy and our resources in the right places. I think that's exactly it. I think um, when we come back, we're going to have a product that we are really happy with and that will reflect on what you, the listeners, um, end up feeling when listening or we've talked about YouTube, not making any promises, watching. Um, But I think you guys are going to really, really love it. And we're going to really, really love it, which I think is really what it comes down to. We want to be really happy with what we are bringing to the table. We want to have this time to put these things out, to work with, you know, different people, to do all this different research, to cover different fields of Puro and different topics. And we're just really excited about some of these projects. And um, I can say with full confidence that you guys are going to be really excited about them too. Uh, but it is going to take a lot more time to create them. And so, yeah, when we come back, we are going to look different, but um, you guys are going to like it. Like I, I'm very excited. So I think uh, I, I know for a fact, actually, that you guys will be too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll still be around. Like you can still reach oh, out God. to me and Rachel on, <laughs> on Twitter and discord and social media. Like we're not really going anywhere. Um, we just need to to take some time. Um, I've alluded to this too, and I think Rachel has talked about this as well when they were taking their break um, a couple of months ago, but um, burnout is real. It's a real problem. And I was struggling with this like hard, even as far back as, as April, like um, we put out Next Dream Part 1, and then I came into work the next day, sat down at my desk, popped open my work calendar and my personal like planner and realized that to put out part two, um, both Rachel and I would have to give up sleep just to get it done. Um, like started weeping and then messaged Rachel and said, I can't do it. Like we have to change the schedule because I'm, I'm gonna, like I'm, I'm free falling through burnout right now. And that's really been my, my problem since as far back as April is there's just so much going on that I'm constantly free falling through periods of extreme burnout and then periods of extreme productivity. And I have to get to a point where um, I'm a lot more leveled out (laughs) and not constantly swinging wildly back and forth between productive and um, completely burnt out. So um, we appreciate, though, that you guys have been so incredibly supportive of us and really understanding when we've had to take episodes off the calendar or things have come out later than we've intended. Um, Rachel knows me extremely well, and they know that, like, it's been an incredible point of, like, anxiety and um, just stress over not delivering um, on things when we say we're going to deliver on things, especially delivering things on time. It's just a part of my personality. It's a part of the militant perfectionism that I bring to the table with things. So I appreciate everyone's kindness and um, support during um, this year and just things not necessarily being um, as smooth in terms of releases compared to our first year. And just know that if you've taken the time to reach out to us via DM or email us some feedback on some of the episodes, like there were some days where like Rachel and I were looking at each other, like, why the fuck are we doing this? Like, why are we like struggling right now? Like up at like midnight trying to get this shit done. Um, And sometimes, you know, you guys would send us like an email um, saying that like an episode that you found is exactly what you've been looking for in terms of, you know, how people are talking about Puro. And those messages 
meant the world to us and often kept us going this year um during periods we were where we genuinely thought we couldn't keep going so thank you very much from you know the bottom of our hearts for your support we hope that you'll be patient with us once more um at the beginning of 2024 while we write the ship so to speak um and then we'll we'll kind of get back to it we will and that's really really well said um again i have to reiterate just Thank you guys so much for your feedback. Um, Alicia would, you know, send me screenshots of some of the feedback we get. And it it really just is everything. Like I would just respond with like, oh, because it just, it all clicks and it, it all makes so much sense when you guys reach out and um, tell us, you know, how much it means to you, how interesting it is, how um, it inspires you guys to go out and learn for yourselves because that's really what we love. We love sitting down. We love learning. We love learning with each other. We love telling each other what we've learned. And um, as we go on with this project, when we come back with this project, that's what we're going to um, continue doing. And we just need to find a way to keep on learning in a way that does not burn us out and doesn't keep us up until midnight, which I do wake up at 3 a.m. for work. So that should give you some idea of um, when I'm translating till midnight, how much sleep um, I'm really getting when I do my translation work. Uh, you will learn this episode, how long this episode took to prepare. I was translating for about two months straight. Um, and Alicia constantly was getting updates on that. Um, and we will talk about that in the translation process in just a moment, um, because we do have a lot of thoughts on um, the amount of work that goes into these episodes and some of the things that we have noticed and have been dealing with in just the um, the Pro community in the what the IWC what are we calling it the uh, internet wrestling community, um, and that's also something that really just attributes to our burnout, and um, we really wanted to sort of talk about it and. Um, sort of get that in the air, I guess, as mm -hmm. we uh, go forward. Um, off our chests, I suppose, <laughs> would be oh, a, yeah. to, to describe that, yeah. Yeah, and to your point, like, you know, you've you've had to put in tremendous hours up against your work schedule to, to translate and to do research and to write and to get things done. Um, I have done a lot of the same, and I'll, and I'll say this, I've told you about this, um, this year, um, in particular. And I think a lot of it is because I had a job change and um, I felt it more this year than I did the first year of the podcast. I am watching less wrestling than I have had in years. And um, it, it doesn't feel good. You know, I, I missed several, like, I think I missed major parts of almost every All Japan tournament this year. And that's like what really drove home for me that I need a break and we need to reconfigure how we do these projects. Because if I'm not watching wrestling, if I'm not watching wrestling that's new for me and constantly learning, I'm not useful to anyone, including like myself, um, because I'm someone who values learning so much and wrestling, especially for me, is something where the more I learn and the more I watch and the more I research, the more I get out of the experience. Um, if I can't constantly bring new knowledge and new perspective to this podcast, if we're going to do something like this, then I don't feel very useful to this podcast. Um, so I need to frankly make a lot more time for watching wrestling and and not missing, um, you know, let alone currently airing wrestling. But this is a like a long period of time where like I haven't even been turning on like 
older periods of Noah and all Japan, like I've been doing for a long time and watching through those or like even like, let alone the a million projects that you and I want to do together where it's like wrestling we haven't really watched yet. So yeah, all that to say, as we move into the other piece of business we want to talk about before we get into I Am Noah 3, um, we've alluded to this in other episodes. Um, we've kind of talked about it pretty plainly in our episode, actually, with Dana and Sarah um, when we were talking about Joshi rivalry, uh, rivalries rather, um, and such. But it is um, very difficult to be two people who are not men um, making a podcast like this. And um, we have dealt with a range of of microaggressions to just outright um, misogyny, trans misogyny, homophobia, like just things that like are are incredibly demoralizing when you're just trying to exist in the same space and talk about the same wrestling with people. But it's so evident that the uh, wrestling pro space, the media space, is a boys club. It is completely uh, cis man dominated. And it is such an uphill battle to get people to um, to listen to us and to respect the type of work that we're doing and how long it takes to put these episodes together because of the sheer volume of translating and research that um, we're doing all the time. But I want to just read some quotes out actually from Dana's letter that she wrote a couple of, uh, I guess, weeks to months back now. Um, Dana is actually on her own break from translating, from, you know, just being a part of like any active stardom fandom right now because she needed to take time for herself and was dealing with a lot of the same um, things that we are going through as well. But I wanted to read a couple of things from her letter, which I'll also link in um, the show notes, because I think it's really important to read her entire letter for yourself. Um, so there's three quotes in particular that I want to read, and then me and Rachel will discuss our way through them, um, that I think frame a lot of our thoughts really, really well. Um, as we've hit now two years of doing this podcast, which we're so incredibly proud of we're so proud that we've done two years of this podcast um I felt like when we recorded our first two episodes that we wouldn't last much longer than that out of my own sheer anxiety like I I can't believe that like I'm recording our voices right now and that like who's gonna listen to me talk about anything right so it's an incredibly proud thing for us to get to two years of kick out um but I'm gonna read these quotes to um from Dana's letter um that really encapsulate I think a lot of what me and Rachel are sort of feeling as we've hit two years of this um the first one and this is again from Dana Quote, and I reached a point where it felt incredibly clear that the issue isn't that people can't identify machine translation. Everyone can tell that a wrestler talking about playing a game is silly. People just do not care and are seemingly happy to have literally anything that can be attributed to the wrestlers they like. So this is obviously talking about machine translation and the issues around that. We've talked about that ourselves on several episodes, even most recently with Jonathan um, when he was coming back from his trip from Japan and what that looks like. Um the next quote I'm going to read is, quote, it's that the entire point of the work I did was to try and convey to people voice and emotion and character, and those are the things that machine translation can never do. No matter how advanced the models get and no matter how legible the output becomes, machine translation does not have understanding or decision-making or knowledge in order to actually provide these things that a human translator can. It can't accurately convey jokes or mood or tone or character. It can't explain a quirky translation choice or a pun via additional notes. It is only ever going to do 
statistical analysis based on work someone else has already done and only ever be useful if you aren't saying anything human or new. So if the exact areas machine translation is hopelessly inadequate are everything I care about in my work, and if so many people seemingly don't care or notice that at all, why do I fucking bother? Which is a conversation that I think Rachel and I have multiple times a week. Um, The third quote I want to read is, quote, I'm frankly not interested just in providing information so it's accessible to as many people as possible. I want to provide information to people who see the drama and narratives in these characters that I do. And it feels like so many people just don't actually have any interest in that. And the more time I spend on Twitter, the worse that impression became. There's no wrong way to be a wrestling fan, but there are absolutely ways to be a wrestling fan that I don't want to interact with. All three of those quotes are, they all hit incredibly hard in their own way. But when you read that third one again, I started tearing up all over again um, because that just really, really sums it up. And um, you actually bring up the, um, there are just fans that we do not want to interact with. And there are so many fans that we do not want to interact with um, over and over again. And it's just, comes down to that. A lot of people, they don't care. They don't want to read um, wrestling. They don't want to put time into understanding what these Japanese wrestlers are saying. A lot of the times they don't even think that these Japanese wrestlers are telling stories. Um, I've actually, my most recent example is I made just a little like lore thread, if you would, on Twitter where I just had a um, really short summary of what is going on with uh, Keno and Marafuji right after uh, December 2nd. And I got a really good amount of feedback on that thread, but I got a few people telling me that I was reaching or that like they're not putting thought into this. These people at NOAA aren't putting thought into this. And that just speaks so loudly to how insular Twitter is that they don't want to think that these wrestlers are even putting thought into what they're doing. They just want a place to complain. They just want an echo chamber to complain in their enclosed, largely white, not often, but you know, largely Western, a very Western um, boys club space. So that's really what I've been feeling is just this sense of, I guess, alienation where I'm just not reading wrestling the same way everybody else is and everybody else is just consuming it so quickly and so massively and that's um, another thing that was in that Dana quote is that they just want this information um, provided as quickly as possible to as many people as possible and and Dana's not interested in providing that and frankly neither are we. Exactly. It's like this very um, like fast food model of translation that you should be questioning at every turn because that's often where you see a lot of the grifters start to capitalize. It's very inaccurate translations that's relying on uh, machine translation that's not capturing nuance. It's not capturing um, the different dialects and the way that these wrestlers speak. 
But it's so frustrating because even when you have someone like Dana who pours so much of like her heart and soul into what she does, um, there's other translators that are very similar um, to what Dana's been doing in that Joshi space. And then there's like you who does like incredible work around the, the translations that you've been able to put out. But then even also Kana, who Kana doesn't know the wrestlers in the way that you and I do, but um, Kana is fluent in Japanese. So Kana is a great resource for just understanding a lot of the nuances of language that even you and I don't don't know right we can provide these things and there's still this apathy and this lack of interest because there is all these other layers that people have to fight through this like these layers of like racism um and these layers of toxic masculinity around what people think in their in their minds that these wrestlers are actually saying versus what no actually this is what they're saying and these things can become so demoralizing because it feels like you said like very alienating um especially for us like this is the only work that we do we only talk about um character and storyline and we we work so hard and have spent so much money and so much time um putting together this type of work to show people this is how they speak and they put together their stories and how much they connect their histories and their backgrounds and their personal stories into the work we see in the ring and in their backstages and etc right um only to have people just outright ignore that in favor of um, often this analysis that is, again, in an echo chamber. It's just, you know, to, uh, you know, appease uh, about five people in a discord. And it's very, very difficult to fight uphill against that, even if we know that we're coming from a really good place with the research that we do. And we're confident in the level of translations that you're doing, Khan is doing, others are doing. It's still very alienating and it's frustrating, um, especially because, the work that we're doing, the work that Dana's doing, other people that are doing around um, the translating and really talking about story and character, that tends to be a space for queer people, um, LGBTQIA people across the board, women. Um, that's why the door is getting slammed in our faces. Um, so that's been um, just very hard. It's hard to constantly live in that that space and to know why the door is getting slammed in your face for, for two years, right? You have to become sort of enmeshed in that space of like, of just IWC bullshit, unfortunately, when you're making work like this and interacting um, around people like this. But you and I just are not interested anymore. It makes this stuff less fun <laughs> it just yeah. does it's so it's so awful to be reminded of like why people will not listen to you or pay attention to you even though you're providing this level of fantastic work yeah that's exactly it is that um could I rebrand and take away my identity off of you know my Twitter could we do that and just you know erase everything just do a blog don't you know tell anyone what our, you know, gender identities are, and then, you know, start speaking in, you know, backstage talk and, and behind hushed hands. And, and then suddenly we have all of this engagement. Yeah, we could do that. We could easily fall in line and, you know, go with the IWC talk, but we're not going to do that. We don't want to do that. That is frustrating. And it's, it's fast food. It's like you said, one day we are talking about how this new um, nine promotion 
Japanese wrestling union is definitely going to protect us from NXT Japan. And the next day, NXT Japan is definitely happening. And it's because all of these sites are just propagating rumors over and over and over again against each other because they know that's what gets engagement. And then the next week, nobody cares about what was published the week before. It's on to the next thing. That's not what we're about. And that's just demoralizing and disheartening to see. And we're just tired of it. I forget what you said when you opened up before. Um, I wish I had remembered it. But I want to circle back around in a way. Um, (laughs) There's something you said that reminded me of like the the conversations that we've had around how cruel people can be. And not necessarily about us. But there's something to be said about about the way that people um, are consuming wrestling in, in such a way that they feel very bold to be incredibly cruel about figures, wrestlers, whatever. Mm -hmm in a way that just doesn't make any sense to me and is again, very demoralizing. And I'm going to make Jake Lee the the primary example of that. It's been very odd since all Japan became, I think more interesting to folks who have never really watched before, especially around the pandemic time and Jake sort of rise to triple crown champion and then everything that's kind of happened to bring him here. Um, It's been very interesting because he is a good example of, of someone who, and this is, I think, a thing for a lot of the All Japan people, I don't think people really know who they are. I think they know who, like, I think they've watched them wrestle, maybe. They don't really know who they are, though. There's just less stuff translated into English. A lot of the stuff that you've translated and Kana has translated has been, like, a good amount of stuff that just hasn't been translated before, which has been fantastic. But it's been really shocking to see how many people have been very comfortable saying like really downright cruel and demeaning and um just reprehensible things about Jake Lee not knowing anything about his story and his story doesn't have to make you like him you don't have to like his wrestling you don't have to like him just because he has a powerful um very moving story right and that's never something that you and I would want to to make people feel right but we want to give you the tools to understand who someone is in the work that we're doing but it's been shocking to see people, and most of them are, you know, these these larger sort of accounts that people look to to have uh, form their own opinions about wrestling, which is always bizarre to me. It's been very shocking watching people feel very comfortable being cruel about a wrestler like Jake Lee. I don't even think I ever saw this level of vitriol for someone like, um, like a Michael Elgin when there's a lot of credible information about Michael Elgin. Um, that you can read about in terms of his character when he returned to Noah before he was then asked to leave, right? It's it's bizarre. And those are also there's also been a lot of times over the past year where it's been like, why are we providing this level of detail on a plethora of people's lives when we're largely releasing, and I'm not saying this to any, like anyone that's listening, I'm not like accusing you guys of being cruel, but it's just, it's so the larger IWC is such a weird beast to sort of contend with of people who are largely fond of 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 being cruel and saying just to me like reprehensible things. It just it's very it's very hard to ever feel like um meaningful change can occur here. Um when there seems like there's so few people that actually 
flag these things as wrong and feel like they are willing to tell people like, hey, this is really weird, like what you're saying about people and the way that you're speaking, because those things are often indicative of how you speak about like people that are not wrestlers, like people in your normal life, you know? Um, that's the stuff that really weighs on me personally and, and bothers me. It just makes me feel like, why am I spending so much time in this space? Like I could go back to being like a civilian and just watch wrestling and text Rachel. Like I don't need to do, <laughs> I don't need to do anything else really. Right. So that stuff's been weighing on me a lot this year too. And you know, I do, and I say this to Alicia all the time when we do talk about this, is I do think a lot of people benefit from how much effort we try to put into humanizing these wrestlers. But it is so startling how people can say these things about Jake Lee and totally ignore um, a lot of really public work that Jake is doing, you know, with middle schools and elementary schools and then they'll turn around and talk about hangman adam page where they will straight up say oh well you don't have to like his wrestling but you can't deny that he's just an amazing person and and a spokesperson and of course you know hangman has been noted to like marty Skrull's tweets he has his own flaws he has a lot of things that we should be questioning about him um, but people will not look at that. They'll only want to argue in a certain direction. I'm not accusing any, you know, hangman fans of, of anything, but I'm saying it's really bizarre that when it comes to Jake Lee, all we talk about is, oh, well, he's bad in the ring and he's boring and oh, he's only popular because women like him because he's good looking. And I think a lot of it comes down to people being able to get away with that because Jake's Japanese, he's Japanese Korean, they can get away with that because there's no one who's going to stop him and say no and present, you know, an English, easy to understand presentation for them because they're not bothering to look and they're not bothering to look for the translated content that Alicia and I put out. And even when we, you know, try to make it as, public as possible. Like when we had our, um, you know, FAQ with, um, or Q and a with Jake Lee on our blog, we're trying to do this work in multiple platforms and people still just aren't interested in looking for stuff that humanizes these Japanese wrestlers, because it's just easier to project your own feelings or the feelings of five people on discord onto these wrestlers and say these things so you can get engagement on Twitter. And it's really, really cruel and disheartening. <laughs> it is, it, you know, and uh, it is, it's so well said not to continue to, to bat this around. Cause I think that you kind of said it perfectly there, but it, it really is just that if you, if, even if like all of the, the information that people claim to want to have was suddenly available to them was suddenly translated and there were subtitles on everything right like they put subtitles on most of jake's promos through his ghc heavyweight title reign this year i think the only one they really missed was pop perhaps um sugiras um for some reason that didn't get translated but um people didn't really care <laughs> like that's the sad thing about it is that those those um those VTRs and the work that they did that was translated were amazing. If you wanted to have an extra insight into Jake and then into um, his opponents going into those matches, but people didn't care because the thing is the people that have often the most shit to say would then um, 
they don't they don't want to actually know these things right because their their expert status is built off of just talking shit so <laughs> the stuff that's like translated would then contradict their shit that makes them quote unquote an expert and then they wouldn't have a grift anymore and that's like the, that's the truth of it that's the truth of it and i felt i feel very confident saying that i've been around for a minute um that's that's the fucking truth of it so yeah i don't know i, I and i just i i want to mention one one thing too that's come up recently you and i have experienced this um a lot in the two years that we've been doing this um but this is an example i'm going to point to because you can actually go and listen to it and in referencing this to you guys on this recording um i do not authorize anyone to go and uh message these people that are on the podcast um, you don't have any authorization on my behalf to speak for me. I fight my own battles. I just want to reference this because it's something where you can go and listen and kind of see for yourself what it's like to be, um, for me personally, a woman and a queer woman um, and what that feels like also trying to create art in the space because this is this is was a great way to sum up the last two years as it turns out. But again, Rachel and I have experienced this in a multitude of ways um over the past uh two years but um at the end of October those of you will know um that uh Lewis was very generous in coming on to help me with an episode on Katsuhiko leaving uh Noah which was um, a very fun episode to do with him it was a great job uh that you know he he brought a lot to um that episode and he cares a lot about uh Katsuhiko and that promotion so it was great um I guess there's a podcast, um, We Work Stiff, and, and um, Lewis knows them from uh, them all being from Australia. I think they've been to some shows together from what I was able to pick up. But um, on We Work Stiff's episode, which um, it seems like it's called The Demon Barber of Osaka, Moxley Todd, it seems. Um, this is about like eight minutes in or so. You can go listen to it there. Um, they talk about Lewis's guest spot, they seem to struggle a little bit to come up with the name of uh, Kickout. And then they uh, proceed to put Lewis over for the great job he did on the podcast and how they felt like they knew Katsuhiko better after the first hour. And um, I guess the host wasn't done listening to it yet, but he felt like, you know, if you listen to it, Lewis does a great job, blah, blah, blah. Not once am I mentioned um, in it. It's not really even a plug for Kickout. It's really just a plug for Lewis. And this is not obviously a slight to Lewis at all. Um, it's just the way in which um, me as a, as a queer woman was written out of her own podcast in the way that they, to they spoke about it, which happens all of the fucking time. Um, LGBTQIA people are written out of their own work all of the time in wrestling um, in Puro, but also just about in any art form you can imagine, we are removed from our own art and our own work constantly. We are stolen from constantly. Um, and again, you should watch the H-Bomber guy um, video because they get into that extensively. But um, queer people are stolen from constantly or written out of their own work constantly. Um, so I I'm only bringing it up as, an, as a very clear cut example of what it feels like when people go out of their way not to even mention your name as a part of your work and what it sounds like to have your male co-host be the lead on your own episode. That stuff, very, very fucking demoralizing, especially after 
a brutal year, but it's, again, it's not the first time it's ever happened to us. It's happened to us multiple times um, in two years. And that's like, we could spend probably a two hour episode talking about everything that's happened to us in two years, trying to make these projects and be in this space. It's just tough. So yeah. Yeah, it, it is very tough. And when you had me go back and, and listen to um, that clip from the podcast, it, it hit very hard because we have experienced that several times. If you, you know, please, you know, give it a listen, because I do encourage you to sort of get that in your head of what it sounds like, because you would not think that Alicia was even on that podcast. You would think that it was Lewis's podcast. And obviously Lewis did an amazing job. That's a fantastic episode. I'm going to recommend it probably like 18 times um, during the I Am Noah <laughs> podcast because it, it does talk about so much important stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's just really palpable. And it hit really hard because we have experienced that constantly in two years. And um it's just important to to remember we are queer content creators. I, I hate that term and we'll talk about why I hate that term in just a second. But um, you, you can't just write us out. We are putting in so much work and you can't just erase us because you're friends with a guest that we have on and we love having on our guests and we love our guests, but you can't just take us away. Um, that's That is cruel to us, speaking of cruelty. So, um, but yeah, and on that note, and on the note of the H Bomber guy video, he got me really thinking long and hard about content creation and about content mills, which was not really, it's a term I've heard before, but it's not really one that I had like sat with. And as a translator, um, it just became so incredibly clear what content mills look like. And I, you know, talked about it just a few minutes ago, talking about um, wrestling media as fast food, where we're just constantly putting out new information that is not reputable and often machine translated because, you know, they either do not know how to speak and translate and listen through Japanese, or they just don't care and they want it to go out as quickly as possible. Um like those quotes from Dana said, relying on AI will never, ever be able to get you to the voice of the matter and get you to the heart of the matter. It will never be able to do that, especially if you're translating like social media posts. If you're trying to um, translate what fans are saying in comments, you're not ever going to be able to put that through an AI because they're talking through internet speak and an AI can't do that. And there's there's just so much there. And I, we, I could also do a two-hour episode on that and on translation theory. And, and there's been a lot of discourse on that on Twitter lately about that with visual novels and with um, manga. And I encourage you guys to, to go through Unseen Japan. They're a fantastic resource. And um, some of their writers have been covering translation theory extensively. Um, but regardless... People need to be questioning that in Pearl as well. They need to be questioning how quickly translators are putting out content and how fast they're doing it versus what the quality looks like. Like I stated earlier, this episode that you're going to listen to is about two, like two months of research. And I had already listened through all of these post matches before 
because I watch the product and um, because I take extensive notes. And a lot of it I've already translated um, through DMs with Alicia. So I, I did a lot of searching through the Discord um, that the two of us have and Discord's update made that really hard for me. But anyway, um, yeah, the search engine, it, it really messed it it's up. Terrible. It's awful. Uh, but I, I did, you know, have notes in advance. And even then it took me two months. Um, Kana, who is fluent. Um, this is something that uh, Alicia had told me is, is, you know, she's fluent and she is balancing this as a part-time job, but it still takes her a while to go through these translations because she's really trying to get the wrestler's voice correctly. She asks Alicia a lot of questions. She's trying to get the context of everything. She's learning about wrestling. That's not something that a lot of these people are doing when they plug something into DeepL or sometimes even Google Translate or just using the little like app to camera things over. Um, I think a lot of people need to sit down and question, you know, where are they getting these? What are their methods? And start asking for clarity on this. I'm going to straight up say it. We need to start sitting down and asking why people like Hisame can put out their translations as quickly as she can. And we need to start asking why people like Dark Pearlflosion seem to know all of these things that nobody else has access to. We need to really sit down and wonder, why are we giving into these content mills? Why are we so excited to have this content constantly and quickly to the point where accuracy and meaning are becoming lost to what sounds extremely robotic and not what the wrestlers are truly trying to convey. They do not sound like people in a lot of these translations. And we need to question why, because these people are humans. They do talk like humans. That is the, I think the thing that is kind of insane is how many of like wrestling fans will accept things like this person is too difficult to translate or this person is too crazy in how they speak, right? As acceptable answers for why their translations are not accurate. It's not acceptable. It's really othering of um, these athletes and um, their language. And it's just not appropriate. I know that wrestling as an industry is extremely carny. It's still extremely carny, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, we are we are so um, far away from a time where I think it will, in, in, in a lot of ways, if we, you know, this is a whole entirely different discussion. I don't necessarily want it to not always be like, it should always be a little carny is what I'm trying to say, but there's, there's no standard, right? Like there's, there's Dave Meltzer in terms of who we have for journalistic standards. And even that has been questioned a lot recently and, and, and fairly so. And I think a lot of ways, I'm not even talking about his star ratings. I'm talking about other things that have come up this year with him. There are, there are no industry standards. Uh, you know, a lot of journalism and media in wrestling is through like you know people like us it's just fans in their in their homes with mics and with you know blogs just saying whatever and to some extent we have to move away from that we have to stop accepting that as the standard that everyone is just going to be taken you know seriously by putting out 
some content just because they can turn it out quickly. We have to stop taking people seriously. And we have to start, um, especially, you know, it always comes down to an LGBTQIA fan with like sub 200 followers calling out these larger accounts for their ethics violations. Um, we need to start seeing men with their larger accounts actually coming on board and like doing the right thing here. I was really dismayed when Denali was going up against Tom and Monthly Perez for um, the quotes that they stole from her that, you know, there was a lot of people that were retweeting her great quote thread about all of it, right? Most of those people, though, were like our people. It's like people that we knew as people within our circle. Um, even then, there were still a lot of people from our circle missing, and there were even more larger accounts missing from retweeting that thread to get some eyes on it. And that's the part we're always missing, is why um, do some of the larger accounts run by men that, you know, people consider to be big, uh, big players in the IWC, why don't they start getting involved and, you know, calling out Tom? For the shit that he says about queer creators and trans creators, you know, like what why why aren't they getting involved? And just like that, it should be also those larger accounts um run by men who should be saying something about um the use of MTL and these content farms as well. That's the only way we're actually going to see meaningful change in the IWC. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. Well. Thank you all for uh, listening to that and holding some space for us to, like Rachel said before, get some of this off of our chest. Again, it's been a long year, a long two years, but it really, you know, I don't want to end this part of it on a completely sour note. Like there has also been a lot of joy in this journey to get to two years of kick out. And we are really excited for what the future looks like for us and the projects that we're going to take on. Um, so again, we, we ask you for a smidgen more patience. Um, and again, we'll, we'll write the ship and we'll come back with, um, I think a lot more energy to create some cool things. All right. So speaking of some cool things that we created, uh, let's get into our thoughts and analysis of Noah's 2023, uh, with our, I am Noah part three. And I, I titled it The Ajakening. Um, I don't know if we're actually going with that, but a lot of this episode, I wanted to really look at Noah as told through Jake Lee's GHC title run because that reign just really goes through a lot of the biggest names of the promotion and explores the facets of what it truly means to be Noah. As well as talk about a couple of things going into their big show for Ariaki Arena, because there is a really big overarching storyline that does connect to I Am Noah as well. However, before we get to that, we need to talk about the man that Jake took the belt from, and that would be the young ace of Noah himself, Kaito Kiyomiya. To start things off, we do need to briefly discuss uh, Kaito's GHC match against Keno on January 1st, 2023 at uh, the past. Noah, the new year, as the background of this match is become pretty important in the grand scheme of Noah. In fact, it wasn't even important when I was originally writing this outline, but now it's becoming more and more important. Um, as a refresher, on October 30th, 2022, Noah announced a quote-unquote miracle match between Great Muda and WWE's Shinsuke Nakamura. 
Keno expressed a lot of concern over this on his live stream after the October show, stating, this doesn't feel like Noah anymore. And that will come up again, actually. Um, a few weeks later, on November 10th, 2022, Kaito Kiyomiya defended his title against Timothy Thatcher while Keno watched on commentary, concerned that Kaito would not be able to put on a match that could compete with the miracle match. Keno nominated himself as Kaito's challenger for the show. So on Christmas Eve, um, they held a press conference to announce the full card of Noah the New Year in the Nippon Budokan, revealing that the GHC match and the Miracle match would be billed as a quote-unquote double main event, with Muda and Shinsuke going on as the final match of the night. Um, I forgot that this was actually a press conference at first, and I would, I'm going to link it in the... Um, link it on the blog i would encourage people to watch it because kaito does like break down a little bit in tears showing how much gravity this situation has with the ghc being the second to last match of the night they really really um went hard on that and wasn't this the same year i feel like all years run together now but wasn't this the same year where he had a meltdown and like screamed at shiazaki at a yes. press conference yes wow. absolutely they yeah, did it that was, twice. They did. Yeah, he had a um that was when Fujita uh had to vacate the title and he begged and cried to uh Shiyazaki to let him challenge. So there's just a lot of weight on this boy's shoulders. <laughs> a lot of weight on this boy's shoulders which comes up time and time again um in his story but also in this uh this year as well. Uh, one thing actually relating to that that sort of sticks in my mind is um, on Noah's official YouTube, He they give an interview and he very gravely states that in this match with Keno, they would have to, quote unquote, put his life on the line in order to prove that they were good enough to be the true main event spot. And um, it, through this match, there's a lot of that you have that falcon arrow spot um which i have spoken on i wrote about it actually in um, the blog please read my analysis of that match it's actually very good if i do say so myself but um they are fighting for the fate of the promotion and they are putting their entire lives on the line for that and, and that a lot of that stems from kaito and how much heart and soul he's really really putting into that um, so yeah, that match was just very much that. Um, but it was also at the same time, um, Kaito Kiyomiya really overcoming his greatest obstacle. This match became a turning point in both men's careers. And we'll talk about that with Keno as well. But for Kaito specifically, it gave Kaito this obvious confidence. Backstage, he was enthusiastic about the future, stating, Noah has talent from all over the world now, and the level of competition is really high. But I am the one who will create Noah's future. I will lead Noah in every aspect and take it to new heights in 2023. On January 21st, we see the first signs of this during a tag match on the Wrestle Kingdom branded crossover show in Yokohama. Kaito teamed up with uh, Yoichi now, Yoshiki Inamura. Um, we will refer to him as Yoshiki Inamura throughout the episode. But um, on Twitter, he has changed his name to Yoichi. We will see how that goes when he comes back from whatever he's doing in England. Oh, boy. 
Yeah. Oh boy. But I, I wrote him in this outline as Yoshiki Inamura. Um, but they were facing off against Okada and Togi Makabe, uh, where upon being ignored by Okada, Kaito gave Okada this firm kick to the face, shattering all of our expectations for this match and lighting the wrestling world on fire. And I've already asked you about this moment, Alicia, but I know that it stuck out for you as well. Yeah, this is like, um, this is so great. Um, obviously this was like a reference to like Ricky Choshu and, uh, stuff as well, which is fucking great. Um, but yeah, loved this. I loved, um, obviously like this, this pop of fire from Kaito, which I think is like the one thing I wish we saw a little bit more from him is stuff like this, especially even at home, um, in Noah. But, um, I also just loved the way that Okada handled this because he took the mask off. Like he was incensed. He stormed around backstage screaming. Like, um, it was perfect. It was just a perfect moment. Um, and just showed, I think I talked about this on our Tokyo Dome, uh, review perhaps with everybody on, but I think I referenced this and I said that like, this was just such a perfectly executed, um, character moment for Okada, who is a master of his own character work. So yeah, just obsessed with this. Yeah, it was exactly that. And um, Okada was, he was storming backstage, like, oh, you know, give me him. I want to match with him. And they made a match with him. And the very, very next day um, at this Road to New Beginning show, Okada claimed that he wouldn't do the match, that he said no such thing. He said that, you know, Noah made that match. Um, specifically say to, stating, and I quote, the company just announced the card without my permission and it's not a New Japan pro wrestling show. So I'm not contracted to be there. So I won't do it. This ties back to a larger storyline going on since 2020, which we talked about both on I Am Noah Part 2 as well as that Keiji Muto review show. Um, however, what's most important here is that Okada and Kaito, the last time they were in a ring together, what happened afterwards? Kaito left the arena crying in Keiji Muto's arms, and Okada decided that was that, and they were done. Now, a year later, we're showing that it's not done, and Kaito has realized a part of himself, and he has come into himself a little bit more, and he now has the confidence to make Okada pay attention even though Okada says, you know, I'm not going to do the show. That is until February 12th, 2023, when Kaito Kiyomiya went to face-to-face with Jack Morris. Now, this is an easily overlooked match in Kaito's reign, but I do want people to go back and watch it because it is actually quite important. Um, Jack had gotten this shocking pinfall on Kaito during his first match in Pro Wrestling Noah on August 11th, 2022, during the N1 victory. And he was looking to make that miracle happen two times in a row. However, Kaito was looking for something else. He was hoping to create a rivalry with Jack that could carry Noah into the future. He actually talks about this at length during the signing ceremony and press conference on February 9th. Um, Alicia, did you want to go ahead and read that out? I don't think it's possible to create a fight for the next generation if I'm alone. I want to show that we will all rise to the occasion and make history together. Yeah, so I think that's like exactly it and exactly how Kaito sees this match. He elaborates that on this in a February 11th interview for PKDX, where he's asked, 
last year and the year before that, Noah was dominated by legends and the older generation. But now almost all of the title matches in Osaka are being held by a new generation of wrestlers. How do you feel the wave of the new generation is coming? And there's um, a little bit more to that interview. Alicia, I'm going to ask you to read it just a little bit again that I have translated. To which Kaito answers, quote, I think it's going amazingly. Even when I'm on a team, there are moments when I feel really excited, like, let's fight now. I'm ready to go even before the entrance music hits. I don't think this is something you can do unless you are of the same generation. Maybe it's a simple thing, but I feel like it gives me a lot of energy. I think that kind of thing is connected to the fight in the ring. The interviewer says, you've always said who you go with is just as important as where you go. Kaito says, quote, we all eat together. We all go through hard times together. And I think that we can really seize a bright future together. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is and what this match is about. And it's about Kaito's heart and his willingness to expose himself to Jack and to the Noah audience. Also in that February 11th interview, there's this quote stating, I think that the only way to compete with Jack Morris's coolness is with emotion. So I'm going to be me. I've been living my whole life with an air of coolness. So when I look at the backs of my seniors, I see that they really expose their true selves in the ring. And I've recently felt that this is what true coolness looks like. And I loved that quote. And I thought you would really like that quote too, Alicia, Um, just because it really shows how Kaito has his mindset on the evolution of both himself, but also as his role in Noah. Yeah, and I think that this quote is so great because, um, to put it simply, it is so Noah. Like, he gets to the heart of what makes Noah wrestling and storytelling so powerful. It's because the wrestlers that go out into the ring really expose themselves. And that's, I think, the part of Noah storytelling that can seem sort of um, maybe confusing at times to people or... Um, where people can get caught up in, I guess, sort of the drama, but not be able to see through it. Um, That's because people bring themselves into the ring and into their storytelling in a way that you don't see in all Japan, in a way that you don't see in New Japan, right? Um, This is part of Noah, and he gets to the heart of that in this quote, and that's why I just love it. Yeah, it's it's just really good. It just made me immediately think of like Goshiyazaki, who we always say just exposes himself so beautifully. And, and we'll talk about that when we talk about um, Shiyazaki and Jake and why their match is so tremendous. Okay. Um, but Okada took a keen interest in this match as well, dropping hints on February 11th, so the day before the match, um, after defeating Shingo Takagi, that he would be quote-unquote interested in seeing what kind of match Kaito would have and ask the audience to keep an eye on it. After the match, Okada did appear uh, where he attacked Kaito and accepted their match for the Tokyo Dome. It is crucial to bear in mind that Okada only accepted Kaito as a worthy opponent after this match, a match built around the idea that Kaito was creating a future for Noah. It's it's not about attacking Kaito to belittle him, to sun him, to whatever. He was attacking him because he saw him as a threat to his place on the top of the wrestling world. So with that you know, set, we arrive on February 21st, 2023 in the Tokyo Dome for Last Love Hold Out, Keiji Muto's retirement show. 
Just before the show began, Kaito Kiyomiya requested that his match with Okada be made into a no time limit match, which was announced over loudspeakers uh, during the pre-show. So just showing just a little bit of arrogance there. Um, then a few hours later, in the semifinal of this historic show, Kaito Kiyomiya finally got a singles match against Kazuchika Okada. Uh, we talk about this again on our um, Muto review show, but I think there's a good amount of revisionist history going on with how fans interact with this match. Um, however, even months later, when watching this match again for this episode, I still feel that way. Um, the heat Kaito Kiyomiya brings in the early phases of this match really cannot be understated. And while this match is short, he gives Okada a run for his money for a good while, and that irritates Okada. And like you said, Alicia, that unmasks him. It brings out this angry, arrogant side, which forces Okada to just be brutal. This chapter of their story is not about Kaito Kiyomiya defeating Okada. It's about him exposing him and forcing the man to strip this facade of like collected calmness. It's really easy to say Kaito Kiyomiya was only defeated in 16 minutes. He was defeated quickly in 16 minutes. But it's also important to point out that in just 16 minutes, Kaito Kiyomiya managed to break Okada of this cool facade. I think it says something that we think 16 minutes is a short match. Yeah. Like anyone saying like he was defeated in just 16, like you're out of your fucking mind. It's because you're used to matches going 40 minutes these days. Right. Or even longer. Um, I think Kaito, as we'll, as we'll talk about, as we get to the end of his kind of arc here in I am Noah, um, he's had the most annoying year, not for anything that he's done, but for the way that people interpret uh, his story and his actions and his place in Noah. Um, and this is one of those key moments of him having an incredible match against Okada. We should still be talking about, I think, this match because it was really quite good. Um, Okada did exactly what he's supposed to do as the ace um, in beating Kaito, right? Like he looked everything that Okada, who is sort of like the pinnacle of the industry, is supposed to look like. But like you said, Kaito manages to break this man down and so that he looks angry and um, gotten to, right? That was, I think, the phrasing I used on the um, Tokyo Dome review show is that he looks gotten to, which for Okada, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. He's someone who never wants to look affected by um, the people that he's facing, right? Um, yet people interpreted this as he's been sunned he's been you know dismissed basically like that you know that's all we're gonna get I've never been so baffled by the way that people viewed this match I think it's because people get too um caught up in viewing New Japan like the big leagues versus Noah the I don't know the minor leagues I don't subscribe to that way of viewing these promotions it's still baffling to me but it gets I think even more baffling as we go on through the year yeah, I think that's uh, exactly it. And Okada even admitted that this wasn't over between the two of them stating, I don't think this is the end of the line, which is actually a pretty big deal because before, like I said, in their um, last encounter, he was he was done. He was like, okay, well, I experienced Kaito, that was it. Uh, but here he he truly, he was still his arrogant, composed self 
like, okay, well, I defeated him, but he ended on that note of, I do not think this is the end of the line. And that is really, really significant. Um, Kaito didn't actually have any backstage comments. This is actually a really funny (laughs) backstage segment. He crawls into the backstage area and that is where we get Jake Lee. And we will, you know, move into talking about their match in a moment. But um, he comes in, he says, hey, Kiyomiya, can you hear me? If you're not using that microphone, can I use it? And then he picks up the microphone and he states that he would like to congratulate Kaito on his victory, but sadly he did not win. He then states, you should rest now. You holding the belt doesn't change anything. I will become the new business model and make Noah as exciting as possible so you can rest easy. I will challenge you, so put your belt on the line. Well, you're in a state right now and can't respond. You can respond on Twitter later or whatever. Think about it and get back to me. Kaito then crawls out of the backstage interview area and it's it's all very unhinged, but it creates this fantastic character moment for Jake, who is all at once domineering and bullying Kaito, but also he kind of raises a good point. Kaito has achieved everything he possibly can achieve in this reign. He defeated a longtime rival. He created new rivals. He faced down Okada and he solidified himself as an ace of this promotion. And I say an ace because there are several aces in Noah. Um, <laughs> and, and that's something there is no number one guy. That is the whole point of these episodes. Um, so Jake saw an opportunity to create his own name and possibly get in that conversation. And that is only off of defeating Kaito Kiyomiya. However, Kaito is not going to let him do that that easily. Um, A major storyline of this match revolved around the idea that Kaito was carrying the quote unquote burden of Noah on his back, which we just spoke about where how he really is carrying that burden and he has so much on his back and that it's weighing him down. Jake actually makes note of this as early as January 7th in this really, really important interview on Noah's YouTube channel. We'll refer to that interview a couple of times throughout this episode. Um, though on Kaito specifically, Jake is asked, what are your thoughts on the current GHC heavyweight champion, Kaito Kiyomiya? Jake says, quote, why is he so gloomy? I just can't picture him smiling. He's supposed to be a baby faced champion loved by everyone, but he always has that crease between his eyes. I have a strong mental image of that. If you always have a scowl on your face, then children will run away from you. If you're a baby faced champion, shouldn't you smile more? The interviewer states that's harsh, but then Jake says, quote, maybe he can't handle it. And if he can't handle it, why doesn't he let me hold the belt? I look better with a big smile on my face. And then he smiles. Then I'll get more popular and I'm sure I'll get all kinds of reactions. Well, that's all for now. I'll talk more about it later. This is far from the first time someone has referred to the GHC at large as a burden, um, particularly one too heavy for Kaito to carry. Um, This bears a lot of similarities to Keno's words to Kaito in 2019 after winning the N1 when he vowed, I will take your belt and your burden. It is one of my all-time favorite promos. I actually have it translated in another um, Keno and Kaito piece on the blog. So I've written two about them. Please do go read them. Um, But on March 9th, Jake defeats Kaito in their first preliminary match, and he echoes these sentiments again, stating, Kiyomiya, that gesturing to the GHC, is far too heavy a burden for you. 
boo me, applaud me, whatever you want. Just come see me on March 19th and I will change Noah. On the 14th, Kamiya repaid that loss by tapping out Anthony Green in front of Jake in Yokohama Radiant Hall. After the match, Kaito stated, if I'm going to run towards the future, I want to run with a bright smile on his face, combating Jake's criticism. Another important thing about this match was this impromptu autograph session from Jake, where he stopped a young girl who was calling out for him, signing an autograph for her on the spot. Kaito actually comments on this after the match, stating, even if he's an enemy, I think that kind of thing is great. I really love this because it chips away at this idea that Jake is this wholly selfish outsider here to conquer the promotion, which does become deeply important. And somebody else will actually mention that little autograph session again, just quick spoilers for this run. They had their press conference on March 17th. And one thing I really wanted to note about this conference is that Jake describes the GHC as a symbol of freedom, stating, I've said this a few times, but the GHC heavy is a symbol of freedom to me. I'm not really sure that you will understand what I mean, but it's the key word I landed on while looking through the history of the title. When you hold the symbol of freedom, what happens to you? What happens to the people around you? It's something you can only know when you hold it in your hands, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I will. This contracts so starkly to how he's painted the GHC while in Kaito's hands as something that is a burden. However, for him, it's something that is representative of freedom. And that just stands out so much to me. And I'm curious about your thoughts on it. When I first heard this quote, I immediately thought he understands the concept of freedom and faith. That's really what it rings so true of, right? It's just Misawa's um, freedom and faith. And it makes so much sense that leaving all Japan the way that he did, and we come to understand more about um, exactly why he wanted to leave later on, right? You've just done some translations on things that have come out more recently. Um, but he was really looking, um, I think, for a place where he could finally do the things that he felt he always wanted to do and also make all Japan proud. And those, I think, became very important to his idea of freedom and faith, right? Um, so the GHC absolutely became key for him to be able to really do those things and take that bet on himself. So um, I wasn't, um, I was delighted to see that this came up in this quote earlier on, but also not surprised in a lot of ways because Noah tends to represent that to a lot of people, um, even if they are not Noah born. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, so that does bring us to the match itself, which is honestly a lot better than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Jake shines like this unstoppable star and he looks dominant and scary. And Kaito puts on this incredible performance as this young ace who perhaps sort of bit off more than he could chew. Um, and YouTube uh, videos before this, Kaito's very arrogant about like, oh, I can handle a tall wrestler like Jake Lee. Just leave it to me. He even says it in the press conference, like, oh, it's perfectly fine, which honestly calls back to Kaito asking to remove the time limit for his match with Okada. He has this confidence that can sort of get ahead of him, but that doesn't mean that the company is burying him. That's a character choice. That's Kaito. <laughs> that is something that he is doing deliberately. And you can really, really see that in the match where he 
kind of neglects and actually not even kind of, he completely neglects to attack Jake's legs and attack this tall guy at the base until like the very end of the match. And he starts and to realize late. it's way too late by then. Um, and he's, you know, like he panics. You can really see it. It's an incredible character piece. And it really plays into what Kaito was trying to do with his character in this first half of the year. So I really encourage people to, to check it out. And I think with this match that was, or the thing that was so frustrating for me, I should say, um, that you kind of alluded to, I think a lot of people, especially those who are not familiar with Jake, went into this match wanting to dislike it. They wanted to dislike it because they wanted to have their opinion from Twitter about Jake sort of upheld. And then people also get this like weird perverse enjoyment um, out of shitting on Kaito, which is just bizarre to me. Um, but it's really worth putting this match back on and sort of watching it um, without the bubble of, I think, Twitter bullshit. Um, I do understand the criticism of the match going a little long. Um, but other than that, I do think it's a really solid match. And I think that um, Jake's palpable joy when he um, won was amazing. I mean, like, it really is important. So good match. Even without the beard on his face. Was well, that was just a shame. <laughs> <laughs> he fixed it. It's fine. Yeah. But even without the GHC, Kaito's importance to the company really just didn't diminish at all. On April 12th, NOAA, All Japan, and New Japan announced that they would be collaborating in a third show under the All Together banner, appropriately titled All Together Again. The three main faces for this event were none other than NJPW's Hiroshi Tanahashi, AJPW's Kento Miyahara, and of course, Kaito Kiyomiya. This trio was described in ShuPro and by Japanese commentary as a quote-unquote ace trio, which shows exactly where Kaito stands in this company. Also, to note, of course, is that the ace trio's opponents in the main event match were Keno, Yuma Aoyagi, and Kazuchika Okada. So once again, Kaito had another chance to face Okada. Before the show, he sat down with New Japan with translations provided on um, NJPW 1972's blog and was asked for his thoughts on the match. When asked about Okada, he states, I'm there on June 9th to be the centerpiece of this match, and I'm there to represent Noah, to expose it to more people. But when Okada and I stand opposite of one another, I don't know what's going to happen. And to me, it's really important that he's still putting Noah first and he's still showing that he's representing Noah. I think that's another thing that people tend to want to forget about Kaito. And I'm going to talk about this again, is that people really think that Kaito has one foot out the door in Noah. Um, but as we talk more and more about Kaito in this section, you're going to realize that everything he is doing here is just to get more and more eyes on pro wrestling Noah. And maybe he will leave. I don't know. I'm not in Kaito's brain, but I think you'll see that the storytelling is not exactly angled that direction. So one thing, speaking of the altogether again match, is just how confident and how much lighter and high-spirited Kaito feels. You can see this in the heat, and that's what you were talking about, Alicia, that heat that sometimes Kaito doesn't always bring. He really, really has that in this match against Okada. You even talk about it in our All Together Again review. Um, even after the match, he boldly declared, 
I will completely crush Kazucho Okada someday. So now he doesn't have the GHC, that burden is lifted and we're starting to see a more confident and, you know, lighter Kaito Kiyomiya. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially when you lay this out on paper the way that you have and you start to look at these things like really on a timeline, which I think is the hardest thing to do when you're when you're watching wrestling, right? It becomes like a forest through the trees situation all the time. But when you take the time to look at this stuff on paper, um, it's a very interesting storyline of Kaito's sort of relationship to the GHC, which we talk about all the time in these episodes. The GHC for some people can be like kryptonite. It can be like the worst possible thing for them. And for Kaito, he hasn't gotten to a place where the GHC isn't a burden for him. Um, So yeah, you can see that going into this match where he doesn't have the belt and it's just about him and Okada and he can be scrappy with Okada in the way that he was in that match, which I thought was really great. Um, Yeah, it all comes together and you can see it as um, these bits of storyline and character really landing, which I love. It's exactly that. And his momentum did not stop there on June 4th during Dominion. The participants for New Japan's G1 Climax Tournament were announced. Please do go actually watch that video. I believe it's on Twitter, but you can um, watch that video and just hear the pop that Kaito gets when they announce his name. That is how excited people were to see him. That is his impact on wrestling in just this short period of time and that's really impressive especially for a wrestler his age like I really cannot say that enough um he does participate in the a block of the tournament he finished with six points record of two wins two draws three losses it's not an astonishing record um but he made a huge impact on this tournament got a lot of really positive fan response um Alicia, do you have any um, ending thoughts on his G1 run? We've already talked about it with uh, Dr. Jonathan Foy, but did you have any leftover lingering thoughts on it? This was an, I alluded to this before. This was like another part of Kaito's year where people's reaction to it was sort of baffling. Um, New Japan is always going to be New Japan, right? Their politics are always going to be their politics. I don't know why people thought that he was going to um, immediately win the tournament and uh, or get into the finals, whatever, and go up against Okada. That was never really going to happen. Um, I think there's two problems. The biggest problem is that people want to rush into the finale of Okada versus Kaito. That needs to breathe for a while. Um, and it's not some sort of like slight on Kaito um or like him not being able to politic that um that's not happening right now you just don't understand how storytelling in Perez works and I'm sorry to be so blunt but um we've been dancing around this now for two years in this podcast but these things um don't almost ever work that way um they're never going to cash in on a story like that um in a in less than a year it's just not going to happen you can build to something better if you wait and let it breathe and let it develop and let it build um if you're looking for that kind of storytelling, frankly, you can watch AEW or WWE. That's where you can find a lot of that storytelling. And that's that would be American wrestling. Um, at any rate, um, I also just think that the the secondary problem would be um, it's not Kaito so much as take it up with the shitty booking of your tournament, you know, in New Japan. Again, not to be so blunt, but I've never encountered such strangeness as it came to the way Kaito was booked in a tournament where he doesn't work for them. 
Um, the whole point was to get more eyes on Noah and on him. He was in Shoe Pro, or not Shoe Pro, he was in Tospo every day during that entire experience and even after. Um, there was so much Kaito press and interest and um, opportunities that gets generated just from him going over to the G1, regardless of how well he performs. Um, there are things that are more important in some ways than how he performs in the G1, right? I think people can get a bit myopic about what they focus on in terms of uh, these opportunities for wrestlers, especially when he's so young. So um, that was more than two problems, I guess. But um, and I guess I had a lot more thoughts than I realized, but I, I still don't understand um, the the reactions to this were absolutely fucking baffling. But um, I'm pretty proud of Kaito for, for giving it a go. Yeah, I think you said it really well. And I like that you mentioned that there, you know, it was about getting eyes on Noah and there were more important things that come out of it, which, you know, brings us to August 13th, where he asks uh, Rohe Oiwa, who was then a young lion, he is not a young lion anymore. I refuse to call him that. He is not a young lion. He has gear now. He has well, a now, really now people use that to just be rude to Oiwa, as they still call him a young lion when they want to shit on Kaito for tagging with him, which yeah. is just like, Rohe Oiwa is better than most of the names I keep hearing out of New Japan these days, which all happen to be uh western guys so um yeah i don't want to hear it anyway sorry to interrupt no please it's totally cool but yeah no it, it comes down to um he asks rohe oiwa to uh come to noah to do his warriors training his excursion as we say in english generally um he specifically states, we teamed up next to each other today and i really want to improve and keep going pro wrestling noah new japan pro wrestling oiwa-san if you're all down, why don't you join me and Noah? Let's go as far as we can go together. Oiwa eagerly accepted. And just like that, Kaito had a new tag partner. Oiwa had a destination for his excursion. And more importantly, and this is sort of what you mentioned, Noah had an exciting new young talent for the time being. And that is what Kaito's I am Noah right now is to me. Noah needs new eyes, new talent, new excitement. Winning tournaments in other companies, sure, yeah, okay, cool, that's nice. But he's bringing back these exciting angles. He's bringing back, you know, we can watch this young lion on excursion right now. All you have to do is subscribe to Wrestle Universe. That's business. That's being Noah. That's putting eyes on Noah. That's the greatest thing Kaito Kiyomiya could have done for this G1. I think you're 100% right. Kaito, as you've demonstrated in a lot of your pieces and a lot of what we've talked about in other episodes, he is the sum of all of his parts. It makes so much sense that he would be teaming with this younger guy um, from a different promotion and forming this new tag team and welcoming him into the Noah dojo and showing him how Noah works and the culture. That is Kaito because Kaito so benefited from um, the kindness of his own seniors, right? Like he really is such a sum of all of his parts. Um, so yeah, that is such a huge part of his I am Noah this year. It, again, this is another one of those things. It's so baffling that people's like gotcha on Kaito right now is that he's teaming with Oiwa, who is such a like burgeoning up and coming talent who's better than most of your favorites. Like, I don't understand why people think that's a gotcha. Um, Kaito is fine. You guys just have a fundamental misunderstanding of him as a character. 
Uh, and, you know, to your point, he is you know, teaming with Rohe Oiwa. They have already had their GHC tag challenge, but um, on November 4th, it was actually a really, really good match. Good, good, good match. Yeah, it was a really good match. But, um, you know, he's also had these little fan service tags with Yuma Anzai from All Japan. And they called that um, a hope trio. It was on um, Monday Magic. And it, yeah, it was, was great. Rohe Oiwa, Kaito Kiyomiya, and Yuma Anzai. They had this surprise tag together. And it was called like the hope for the future trio. And um, now as we're getting into Ariaki, um, Oiwa and Kaito are looking for um, this revenge or like this match with House of Torture. And it's turned into full-scale warfare um house of torture have come out on december 20th during Hurricane hall to attack um kaito kiyomiya and ruhei oiwa junta miyawaki caught a few strays it was actually really funny <laughs> <laughs> anyway um but now it's become this full-scale warfare and who joins them but shota umino who is currently being positioned as a young ace of New Japan. So you can see Kaito building this little army of the hope for the future around himself, all these young blooming aces that are still very early in their career are now rallying with Kaito Kiyomiya and Kaito Kiyomiya is the center of that. He is the leader of that. And that's just really, really cool and really, really important. I'm not thrilled about the house of torture shit. Yeah, you know, I'm not either. <laughs> I'll I'll be totally honest. I'm not thrilled with this whole card for Ariaki. I'm going to say that probably about 16 times or so. Um because yeah. I can defend the storytelling. I can defend what the wrestlers are doing and telling with this story. I think their work is incredible. I don't like the card itself. Straight up, I don't like it. I'm not excited to watch it. Will I wake up at 3 a.m. to watch it i don't know maybe i'll be at alicia's house so we'll yeah. see we'll um, see how we feel yeah maybe your cat will wake me up but yeah. we'll um, see how yeah we'll see how margo feels it's really what it's going to come down to yeah. margo's not going to let you leave that bed anyway um <laughs> but yeah so i don't love the you know the storyline with house of torture um i don't love the match that's come out of it but i do think there's a lot to be said for Kaito leading this charge. And he actually approached um, on December 21st, he approached um, Shota Umino backstage and Shota asked to be in this match because he has a grudge against House of Torture thanks to Ren Narita, which was a really funny plot twist. Honestly, it made me laugh very hard uh, when Ren Narita joined House of Torture. But, um, you know, Kaito says, yes, but only if you get me on the Tokyo Dome card. So anybody saying that he can't politic, we have kayfabe politicking in Kaito's personality. He is he is doing that where you can see it. Um, whether he's doing that backstage, that's not for me to say. But we are seeing his personality bloom into this, you know, confident ace who's like, hey, put me in the Tokyo Dome and then I'll let you be in my Ariaki match. Um, and so Shota Umino has come in. And Kaito is now really leading the charge against House of Torture. Um, during the final show of the year for Noah on December 23rd, Soya rallies Noah's troops together into this united front, which we will talk about at the end of this episode. But I wanted to highlight specifically Kaito's words during this segment. All of us, all of us 
We will make Ariaki a success. We will build Noah together. We will do it. This connects to Kaito's modus operandi all year, trying to get as many eyes on Noah as possible, be it through new rivalries, exciting matches, appearing in other companies, or now leading this small army to fight against New Japan. And he's doing it all now with this smile on his face, showing that you don't need the GHC to be Noah. And being Noah is anything but a burden. Beautiful sentiment. I think that... um. Here's my here's my Kaito hot take. I think people came into conscious or a lot of people, many people came into consciousness over Puro um, with Okada as their sort of template for understanding what an ace figure is, right? Or like a Tanahashi. And I think that because of that, they have no idea how to read Kaito. And they think that Kaito is like behind, right? Because of where Okada went so quickly. And to that, I say Okada like couldn't walk by 30 um, because of how much they pushed him and how quickly they pushed him. I think that there's a better way to build Kaito. And I like how they're building Kaito because they're not going to burn out this. How old is Kaito now? He's like 27? 7, 28. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Yeah. He's got to be like just around 26, 27, I think. I would rather him get to 30 and still be able to walk rather than them burn him out. And I like the slow burn of a lot of his um, storylines. They're not going to land with a lot of, I think, uh, Western audience because they're not usual storyline beats that we see um, in, I think, Western or American wrestling. But that doesn't mean that he has, like, been sunned and that he's, like, you know, doing nothing or fuck all with his time because he's teaming with Oiwa. I think that that's such a fundamental misread of his year. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And speaking of wrestlers who are fundamentally misread constantly, um, that brings us to, I know, what a segue, (laughs) brings us to Jake Lee. So uh, most of this episode is exploring Jake Lee's title reign and his relationship with each one of these major pieces of Noah. Um, But I did really want to just take some time to talk about the man himself, um, his journey in Noah and where he stands today. So Jake first appeared for Noah on January 1st, 2023 at their Budokan show to congratulate a stunned and confused Jack Morris on his victory against Timothy Thatcher. We have talked extensively about Jake's decision to leave AJPW, but it's important to note that this was Jake's very first appearance since his last match with All Japan. So it was the first time we had seen him. His music played. Alicia was so stunned. She had nothing. She had nothing to say and didn't know what to do. And I couldn't recognize the theme song to save my life. I think I just yelled and pointed. (laughs) No idea what was going on because I- Just made noises. (laughs) There is one theme song I can recognize right off the bat. And unfortunately it's Keno's. So nobody else, I don't know anyone's theme songs, but um, yeah. And and Alicia was just sort of screaming, but it was one hell of a moment. It really was. And then backstage, Jake states, happy new year, everyone. I'm sure you all have one specific question to ask me. Isn't that right? Perhaps that burning question is, why did you come to this ring? So I'll answer that now. I've always said that I want to fight against different types of people. That's why I came here, like it or not. That's all there is to it. 
uh, Yoshiki Inamura then appears, challenges Jake to a match, citing Jake's interest in wrestling against different wrestlers. Jake accepts, Inamura leaves, and then Jake goes on. Quote, that's that then. I think he made a good choice. Why, you ask? Because he will get more attention when he faces me. The press will be interested in me too, won't they? They're probably wondering what I'm planning on doing. So I think he made a good choice. Not only him, but all the wrestlers in Noah. I'm a hot topic right now. So if you fight me, you'll get more attention. And I'm not going to be here forever. Keep that in mind. Alicia and I talked about that one little line. Um, I won't be here forever quite a bit. And it remains extremely important to keep in mind as we get uh, further and further into Jake's story. Oh, absolutely. That that kept coming back and coming back and really only made sense like September, October-ish. Like that's how much that line kept coming back. He repeats the sentiment uh, again in that January 7th YouTube video, uh, along with some other really important thoughts on Noah. I have written some, um, translated some pivotal excerpts from that interview. So the interviewer says, when did you start thinking about leaving all Japan? And Jake says, two or three years ago. At the same time, I always wondered about what role I could play in the 50th anniversary of AJPW. I thought I could have a better idea of how I felt about it all once the 50th anniversary happened in October of 2022. So when the 50th anniversary came, I started thinking I would like to wrestle with various other wrestlers. It was that simple. So that's why you chose Noah. You have never had any contact with Noah before, but what is your impression of the organization? And Jake says, I have this image of Misawa, and after that, Cyber Agent and Abema come to mind. Then you don't watch any current Noah. And Jake says, no, I do watch a lot. That's why I signed up for a Wrestle Universe account. And he laughs. Um, the interviewer says, what kind of impact will this new step in your career have? And Jake says, what I have that the other Noah fighters don't is my height and size. I know this is something people don't really talk about, but many of the heavyweight fighters in Noah are smaller than those in other companies. I guess I should say that they aren't small, but rather lean and toned. They are agile, but they are also powerful. However, as in any sport, size is very important and it changes the way you look at them. That's why I want to do various things with this weapon. Are you looking forward to seeing what kind of chemical reactions will be generated by your coming to Noah? And Jake said, that's right, I am. You never know until you try, no matter what. Maybe people will think I'm all talk and no substance. I always have a sense of anxiety and tension about that. However, because of that constant anxiety and tension, I also feel a tingling excitement, which in turn is fun. It's very thrilling to be on the edge. You stated that you won't be here forever. That was a surprising comment to make for your very first appearance. Jake says, take it as it is. I'm not planning to lay down roots here or anything like that. What I always say is that I want to fight against different guys. So if I finish my story here and think to myself, what's next, I'll leave. So come see me while you still can. I hope that's what that means to you. Yeah, I really liked this whole interview and I have a few other excerpts um, translated throughout this episode. But um, especially that last part of um, if I finish my story here and think to myself, what's next, I'll leave. I want you guys to keep that in mind, especially as we get down his story and to his rivalry with Keno, because that is very, very important. Um, during this interview, Jake mentioned that he would like to stay unaffiliated with any units, but it didn't actually take Jake long to form a unit of his own. Um, he first debuted GLG Good Looking Guys on January 19th and announced its name and new member, Anthony Green, 
on the unit name and ethos, he states, As the name suggests, we are a team of good-looking guys. We are looking for other cool and interesting good-looking guys from different organizations, both in Japan and overseas, and we hope to create new scenery with them. Yeah, so there are some really good thoughts there on Jake Lee. I'm curious on all of your thoughts. Um, I'm not actually sure if you've read that entire interview uh, before, Alicia, because I, I sort of was translating as I was going along with writing this uh, outline. So I was wondering if you had any new and exciting thoughts. Um, I don't know if I have new thoughts necessarily. Like, um, I remember all of us sort of laughing at good looking guys in the beginning and like, it's still funny, but it's become like the most charming, wonderful thing ever. Like we'll probably talk quite a bit about good looking guys throughout the episode. Um, But they've been like a a fucking joy, like as it's kind of all come together and all the players have come together um, in that unit. They're essentially like the only unit in Noah too, which really helps at this point. Um, So they've had a lot of uh, opportunities to win people's hearts. But I do think it's funny that a lot of people in the beginning of this, um, there must have been like a, a, a shitty a uh, quote passed through Deeple that people were like leaning too heavy on in terms of like trying to figure out Jake through good looking guys and reading too I think heavily into this as part of like his persona and it's like no I think we're just guys being guys <laughs> when we're just when we're doing GLG <laughs> like I don't think that this like actually is the thing that says that much about him personally I think like especially um in the beginning and we'll probably talk about this as we go along um in the beginning he was definitely coming in as an outsider as someone who was being very cool very aloof um a little threatening um you see this a lot in the match with Kaito and especially in his words with Kaito right like he was being a lot more threatening and a lot more aloof with Kaito in particular that rapidly begins to change but I think people really held on to that first impression but like don't appreciate that character can change rapidly as storyline develops and like Jake changes as a character within Noah rapidly from the Kaito defense on up through what he was doing with Ken O, which was such important work at the end of the title reign um so I I just kind of find that funny in um that that to be quite funny in hindsight is that people were really trying to make this like good looking guys to be like this like very integral part of Jake um philosophically and it's like no it, we're just we're just we're just guys doing guys things right now it's that's it <laughs> there's really nothing yeah. to read into he really just looked at, at the members and thought like well we're guys and we're good looking you know and yeah like had an that's idea. it we're just um, guys being guys and we're good looking guys and that's just that's kind of who Jake is. He, he's a very casual guy. Um, as I was learning more about, you know, I had trouble, and I've talked about it multiple times. I've had a lot of trouble translating Jake because his speech comes off as very vague. But once I've sort of started remembering and realizing, like he talks like a millennial, and he talks very vaguely and very laid back and casually, um, his language started to come together a lot more for me. Um, and that's something to bear in mind, especially with things like good looking guys. And to your credit, um, Alicia, that's that's really what you're saying here is a lot of people were trying to read a wrestling character into this, whereas really in the end, it's just Jake Lee and the, you know, Jake Lee beyond the character popping out, which goes back to what Kaito was saying about how true coolness is exposing your true self. And that's what Noah is. That's, you know, you said it beautifully. That's 
That's Noah is they really expose their true selves. So we're starting to see that. And we'll see that as we continue with talking about Jake's run is we see the real Jake pop out more and more and more and more all the way to Keno's um, title match. So while we will be talking about that throughout the episode, um, I did want to touch on Jake's N1 and why it is so important to his uh, time in Noah after defeating Sugira on June 17th. Jake declared that he would enter the N1 victory. He was asked what his theme for the N1 victory would be. And he said winning, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) Um, He's like, it's going to be winning. Um, But up to that point, Jake had not suffered a single singles loss in Noah at all. And he was looking to maintain that dominance. And he really wanted to win this as champion, which hadn't been done under the N1 banner before. And he really wanted to win it with absolutely zero losses, which also has not been done. Um, So for a while during the tournament, which started on August 6th, that's exactly what happened. He was in a block and he defeated everybody. He was dominant, Um, except for three people. Two of these were draws back to back in his uh, hometown in Sendai against Masakita Mia and Jack Morris, which I know, Alicia, you have a lot of opinions about these back to back draws. We've talked about them a little bit with Jonathan Foy. I still feel, you know, like they were weird, like math tournament shit, especially because like everything that happened in the end one that we thought was going to mean something coming out of it didn't actually mean anything um except obviously stuff that happened with Keno but that was like you know Keno is Keno but so many things happened in this tournament that just ended up not meaning anything like Katsuhiko pinning Wagner we thought he was going to get like a national shot that didn't happen obviously Katsuhiko then just left Noah but it didn't matter get the national shot yeah well clearly yeah Yeah, that's the reason yeah clearly (laughs) nothing about Fujita it's all it's, it's really just about the national shot but so many of those things didn't matter, including like Jack Morris going to a draw. Like we've never seen a re- return to that. There's no tension. There's no anything from that. Right. And like Jack wasn't in line to get a title shot. Right. Like, so it just, I don't know. It, it didn't make any sense to me. Whereas I feel like if only Masa got that draw, that would have been so symbolically important to have hanging in the air for Masa, even if he didn't immediately get to have any kind of title shot because Masa needs those symbolic story point things, right? So that's my biggest problem with it all, I guess. And after the match with Masa, Jake straight up was like, this is as good as a loss. So he was like really upset about it. And I thought it was going to, you know, come to something. And I'm I'm still kind of hoping and praying someday we get a singles match with those two. Cause I just really want to see it. Another singles match with those two. Cause that draw was phenomenal. That draw was so fucking good. Match is amazing. Um, it, it was almost one of my matches of the year, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but he did suffer his first actual quote unquote singles loss on um the 27th. But before we get to that, we will be on August 26th when he does defeat Yoshiki Inamura. This puts him on top of the leaderboard of the N1, allowing him to advance to the finals very easily so long as he defeats his last opponent, Keno. After the main event on the 26th, where Keno does defeat Masakita Mia, Jake approached Keno, grabbed the mic, and stated, Keno, I'm still in this N1 and I haven't lost a single match yet. 
Will you be the one to teach me how to lose? Keno agreed, declaring he will teach Jake how to lose. He had more thoughts on Jake backstage, which uh, we will read now because they play a huge role in understanding Jake's story with Keno going into their title match in October. Quote, hey, Jake Lee, you came out at the end and said, I haven't lost yet an N1 victory. Is that true that you haven't lost yet? Jake, you've only been in Noah for about eight months. No wonder you don't have many losses. Hey, Jake, let me ask you a question. Do you feel more at home in Noah than you did in All Japan Pro Wrestling, which you left because you were unhappy? Of course you do. You must be comfortable here. You were losing all the time in All Japan. Oh, by the way, you lost to Suwama, who I beat directly, right? So it looks like you've been awakened and become a little stronger here and, you, and you're more comfortable. But Noah's real strength is me, Keno. Hey, Jake Lee, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to peel back your skin and destroy you. And aside from Keno being completely hung up on Suwama, which we will also discuss, um, this these were really powerful. Um, he really cuts to that heart of the matter that, you know, Jake left because he was unhappy and it was time to leave. And now he's found somewhere that's more comfortable. Um, this is just really how Keno tells these stories. He cuts out any bullshit and he doesn't leave any room for interpretation. That is exactly where this is. Jake has been awakened which is just really really cool and really powerful so that brings us to august 27th where jake does lose his first singles match in eight months at the hands of keno after he landed the enron to a loud chorus of cheers jake did not say anything after this match but you could really see the frustration clear on his face um, one thing I want to touch on here while we're talking about Jake specifically is his post-match microphone, though, and that will be jumping forward to September 24th. Um, we will talk about this match between Goshiyazaki and Jake um, when we talk about Shiyazaki, but it is important to talk about Jake's feelings going into that match and his words afterwards. The theme of this match is return, and again, we'll talk about this again. Jake kept bringing up his past as a quote-unquote returnee to the world of pro wrestling. He had quit wrestling and then he had come back, which we talk about in Next Dream Part 1. And we talk about it a lot with Jake, actually. It's a very huge part of his story. Um, after defeating Shiyazaki, who had left pro wrestling Noah and then to All Japan and then came back to Noah, so therefore is also a quote-unquote returnee, um, Jake really take some time and states. Well, it seems I have a small face for the size of my body. I wonder if people envy me for that. And he laughs. It wasn't always that way, though. Even before this match, I kept using the key word return. No matter what I did back then, I was useless. I was at the bottom of the class in my studies. My athletic ability was poor. And to top it all off, even though I got into a dojo, I quit right after my debut. But now such a guy is holding a belt. Isn't that a dream come true? Wrestling is full of dreams. I chose the arc as my main battleground to embody that. Which is just incredible, just especially that last sentence. Uh, backstage, yeah. he does elaborate that on that just a little bit more. Quote, as I said in the ring, I made it a bit personal, but anyone can get to a certain level if they try. From there, it depends on the environment, luck, and the timing. Not everyone will blossom. The world isn't that kind, I know that, but you can't give up. That would be such a waste. I've said it many times, but wrestling is full of dreams and the possibilities are endless. 
If you are watching this and want to become a pro wrestler, don't give up. There is definitely a way. Thank you for staying up so late. And of course, I want your thoughts on this because this is really just Jake. And that's why I wanted to put this in this section. Um, we'll actually talk more about Jake's thoughts on Shiazaki a little bit later on because they are equally as powerful. But I really wanted to put this in this section on Jake to just embody who Jake is and who he has become. Like you said, when he started out with Kaito, he's you know playing this sort of arrogant, um, aloof kind of guy. And then now we're looking at him in September and he's just really showing this raw side of himself, this returnee who thought he couldn't amount to much. And now he's holding this belt and he wanted to embody that story and he wanted to be in Noah to embody that story. Yeah. You know, I think that there's, there's been so many things this year that have happened for Jake that have been very important. And they've all come on the back of him. Um, like he says so beautifully, um, choosing the arc um, as his main battleground to embody that right and how wrestling is full of dreams, which are just such beautiful um, Jake-isms, really, just the way that he speaks. But um, there's been a lot of really important things that have happened to him through this year that don't necessarily have to do with wrestling, even. Um, he is very close, like on the cusp, I think, of getting the news he needs about... Um, becoming a citizen so he can have his passport and um that's been a very personal journey for him and we talked about it in next stream part one i think we've talked about it in other episodes too um but he's been a lot happier about his progress with that than he's ever been in the past i think it was in august that he for the first time that i've ever seen him he celebrated his debut anniversary, um, his literal debut anniversary from 2011. So not what he's been doing for years now, which is only acknowledging when he came back to All Japan in 2015. And he um, wrote like a beautiful thread about just, um, you know, embracing himself essentially was what the theme of that entire thread that he wrote around, um, you know, that anniversary in late August. And um, this has been a year that, and some of this has played out in the ring, of course, too, through the different themes. And you'll see that when we're talking about the matches, um, this has been a year of, of Jake Lee really finding himself, I think, stepping out of a lot of the things that were perhaps holding him back in one way or another. And I'm not necessarily referring to anything in all Japan, because that would be too much speculation. We have no idea, but I think that there's been a lot of things happening to him in his professional life and his personal life. And this year was about stepping out of all of that stuff and finding himself feeling more comfortable with himself embracing himself as a returnee and not being ashamed or embarrassed of that anymore which is a beautiful thing really right like like I think that's a very powerful thing for him um in a more recent shoe pro he was actually one of the people that got to do a wrestler's um human story for shoe pro they just brought that column back it's been defunct for a couple of years and they just brought it back for an anniversary he spoke, I think, more um, in detail about his family background than he's done in a long time. Um, and just, he's very, he's no longer, I think, willing to like hide these these details and these parts of himself. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing and a, a powerful thing and a very Jake Lee thing. So much of his work as a character in the ring is the personal. And that's why he fits in so beautifully well um at Noah right because so much of what we saw him do this year and that's why it's been so frustrating to see people talk the way that they do about him so much of what he has done 
has been in has been in the personal and that's why Noah has has like he said been the perfect battleground for him because he felt he fits in so well just based off on that alone but clearly he is feeling so much better about himself and so much more free yeah that's beautiful beautifully said um truly and we're um just really glad to be able to watch him through um this story in Noah and um he does fit in really, really well here. We'll discuss it when we discuss his match with Keno. But a part of that story was um, Keno bringing back these words about Jake's future departure from the company with really heavy implications. And I, I translated that part. We'll talk about it later. Um, that Jake would elect to stay um, even after losing the title. There has not been any official word on Jake's contract status, um, Shukan Pro Wrestling's annual player directly directory did list him as a freelancer. Um, however, Keno backstage on October 28th made allusions to him signing an annual contract, but only as a quote unquote rumor that he heard from president and director Takeda in a quote unquote small publication, which I still to this day think was probably a work email, but you know, that's speculation. Um, but before stating, you know, if the president is saying it, then it must be true. Um, sort of giving a wink and a nudge, but there, there's some conflicting information there. Um, however, he has continued to, as of right now, now exclusively fight for Noah, even after losing the title. Um, and he will hopefully stick around at least long enough to get his revenge on Ken Owen and hopefully long after that as well. And the interesting thing about him and Ken o, um, with where he is with Ken o, you know, he is, he's lost twice now that, that in theory would put him in a place where, you know, he's, he's chasing after someone in the way that he chased after Kento Miyahara for so long, right? But the vibe of it all is so different, um, which is really, really interesting and, and really cool um, to kind of see him in. Like, that's not something he's leaning on right now at all as part of his character. It's like, there's no, I think, urgency in him to chase after Keno and to desperately get this win back um, in the same way we saw him, you know, just fight to get that win um, and those meaningful wins over Kento, um, there is a sense that like him and Keno are in the center of Noah together, and they're going to be at opposites because they have different philosophies. Um, but it's not this this thing that has to be held over him, which is really cool. It's it's a cool thing to see at this stage of his career. I'm really glad you uh, mentioned that because that's going to come up again as we talk about actually Keno and Go Shiyazaki because there's a lot of uh, really interesting parallels to to say there in the great web that is I Am Noah. But let's sort of bring things back to Jake's run with the title itself where his first challenger was uh, Katsuhiko Nakajima. Now, Nakajima is no longer signed to Pro Wrestling Noah, but his story this year is still a vital piece of what it means to be Noah. And we did really want to touch on that. Um, Alicia and Lewis did that beautiful tribute to Katsuhiko's time in Noah called Katsuhiko Nakajima, A Spectacular View. I already told you I'd be recommending that episode all episode. Um, please, please do go listen to it. It has incredible thoughts and opinions on Nakajima's career and why they are so important, as well as thoughts on his future. Um, however, that being said, I did want to talk about Nakajima and Jake um, and their match, which happened on April 16th of this year. So after Jake defeated Kaito Kiyomiya on March 19th, Nakajima appeared and immediately 
issued a challenge to Jake stating, do you know what my appearance here means? Jake Lee, I'm going to show you the real Noah. I am Noah. Orega Noada. And he actually repeats these words almost word for word saying again, Orega Noada or I am Noah. Jake backstage mentioned that Katsuko Nakajima was the wrestler in Noah that he probably wanted to fight the most and was excited to face him. This calls back again to that interview he did for YouTube on January 7th. On this, he specifically states, The interviewer says, you said there are a lot of interesting wrestlers in Noah. Which wrestlers are you specifically interested in? And Jake says, quote, The first thing that comes to mind is Katsuhiko Nakajima. He is such a strong and skillful player, so I started to wonder why Nakajima was in Congo. It is strange to want to be subordinate to someone else, so I felt like, are you sure you want to be there? Mind you, this is before Katsuhiko left Congo. Um, So yeah, yeah, his desire to face Nakajima was there from the beginning. And um, in this build to this match, we sort of get to see Jake realize this dream, which is sort of where the real Jake begins to slowly come out. Um, And Jake also states backstage, and this is very important, I will take the helm of the arc, which becomes an extremely, um, it's something that they all end up saying. (laughs) They all end up borrowing that phrase and it becomes really, really crucial to his I am Noah story. On March 24th, after a preview match between Congo and GLG, Katsiko called upon those words backstage, stating, how can Jake Lee, who has only been here a short time, take the helm of Noah? How can he take the helm if he doesn't know Noah? He can't do it. I, Katsuhiko Nakajima, will stop him. That's all. And that just shows this protective streak that Katsuko has towards Noah, which is just a huge, huge part of his character. You can see it in everything he does. He is such a protective guy towards whoever he is teaming with, wherever he is. He will protect it and he will protect Noah. On April 8th, Jake defeated Nakajima in a preview match through referee stoppage while Nakajima refused to give up. Uh, This sort of caused Jake backstage to set the quote-unquote theme of this match, which he would do throughout the rest of his reign. It was really fun to follow like the themes that he ended up picking. For this one in particular, he stated that the theme would be madness versus madness, stating what people want to see is that lunatic smile, right? Kicking people in the stomach and laughing maniacally. Let's make this match madness versus madness then. Let's smile together. Which one of us can keep smiling until the end? And that just was really interesting to me that a key theme here was Jake Lee and smiling. Yes, he has that like evil laugh or whatever that he brings out specifically for this program and then drops it pretty much forever after that point. But there is a thread here between him leaving All Japan because he wasn't happy, his comments about Kaito's own lack of smile and his comments here. And I was curious if you had thoughts on that, Alicia. That's interesting. I don't know if I've necessarily thought about that or thought about that in a while because you're right. Like he, like once we get through this, he really moves away from that stuff like entirely and we don't really see it again. Um, I think it makes sense in the context of Kaito, right? And removing his burden. I think here, like, I don't know if there's anything to necessarily read into it other than like Katsuhiko is so well known for his like Cheshire cat grin, right? 
Um, and they ended up calling this card the Lunatic Gate, um, which like <laughs> is a pretty funny name, all things considered. So I don't know how much there is to read into this because again, like once he got through um this match like his character changed again he became that much more noah in defeating um the helmsman of noah if you will so yeah i don't know did you did you pick up on anything from this beyond the surface really i just thought it was an interesting trend of um these you know two matches back to back being very much about smiling um but i do think you raise a really good point where he's you know he drops it after because he's sort of once he gets through Nakajima, he's really starting to become Noah and, and come into himself, which is just really, really cool to see. Yeah. I guess I guess the one thing I'll say is that with Katsuhiko, we've talked about this a lot, like there is a mask there and it's really, really hard to get Katsuhiko to unmask, right? Um, I think we see, I don't know if you have it translated for this one, but we talked about it, I think in the episode we did with Lou, um, this year when we reviewed a Noah show, um, as part of Jake's like backstage, uh, or not backstage, it was like a VTR, or like a, I don't know, his comments going into this match with Katsu. Um, he talks about, he, he was watching some Katsuhiko matches, I guess, and he was watching his eyes and like, that was really important to him in the prep for this. So I wonder if like him talking about smiling here is because he's sort of, acutely aware of the mask that Katsuhiko sort of puts on through a lot of the smiling um and who better than to know that than Jake Lee who has spent so much time with uh Kento Miyahara but there there could be some of that in there but it's not something I'm willing to read into necessarily because he drops it so quickly yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, and that was in the YouTube videos. Um, they are actually translated yeah. on the um, NOAA Global YouTube. So do check those out. That was also where they had mentioned that the match could easily win in or end in one shot, which becomes pretty important towards the match itself. So actually all those things become very important towards the match itself. Um but before we get to that, uh, Katsuhiko did get a win over GLG the next day on April 9th. Um, that is their final prelude. However, what I really wanted to talk about was Nakajima in his comments from the press conference, which was just before their match on April 13th. He opens the conference with this feeling of protectiveness towards Noah. And I just really like these. So go ahead. Quote, no matter how enthusiastic I am, Noah's precious GHD heavyweight title has been handed over to an outside enemy. We have no choice but to get it back. I think we've all been fooled, haven't we? The champion, Jake Lee, does not belong to Noah. He's an outsider enemy. He's just a clever guy who signs autographs for kids and puts on a good front. The other night, I didn't give up and he stopped the referee. You want over Noah's juniors through GLG and you even put the referee in GLG's pocket? I wish Sendai would come faster. My hands are itching. Katsuhiko Nakajima of Congo, I'll reclaim it. That's all. Jake commented specifically on the notion of fooling everyone, uh, stating, wouldn't it be better to let yourselves be deceived by me? If you're going to put it that way, it seems like fun. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a really great, funny little conference. Um, it goes on, though, if you want to. Jake is then asked, when you announced your challenge, Nakajima said, I'm going to show you the real Noah. And Jake said, I'm the one who's getting everyone excited right now. Then that makes me the real Noah, right? 
Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Yeah. But um, it's all, and I think that ties back to, I mean, it ties back to everyone, um, but it ties back to what we were saying about Kaito too, is it's all about getting eyes on the promotion and, you know, getting people excited and making storylines that excite people. And that's what Jake was doing with this run is he was getting eyes on Noah. So even back then. I do want to point out that like when he, from the time that he entered Noah in January through like especially the earlier parts of his reign this was a man who was in the press every day like there was I've never seen the level of articles um for one person like him like it was crazy like every major publication um that covers wrestling was putting out like even articles that were like just basically saying the same thing as each other but everyone needed to have um Jake Lee content um so yes like I I know that people like that are um out of their minds like to say that like you know he wasn't doing anything and like you know like there was like no one in the venues for him that's such bullshit um there was like a lot of press attention and a lot of people that were like coming to venues to see him yeah it was it was exciting and that's exactly what it is and that is in a lot of ways what I am Noah is, is the people who can bring in that attention and communicate themselves. And that's something that Mara Fuji will mention uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Nakajima is asked what the GHC means to him. And he just says one phrase, I am Noah, leaves it at that. It's very Nakajima comments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very uh, typical of him. The two pose for photos together and Jake pointedly refused to make eye contact with Nakajima. Um, Jake kept mocking Nakajima's height and his size, pressing the GHC to his face. Um, Nakajima got fed up and slapped him with that tensioner, uh, that palm strike, leveling him to the ground instantly. Uh, He then poses with a big mad wolf smile and walks away. Um, And that sort of plays into what we were saying before with like things ending in one shot. Um, but that brings us to the match itself, which of course was incredible. We've talked about it before, but Alicia, what are your overall thoughts? I know we've talked about that elbow spot, but I really love connecting it to sort of Nakajima's desire to um, protect Noah and and punish and hurt Jake through that. And then you also mentioned like sort of that breaking of the facade. Yeah, like I I really love this match. Um, we'll talk about these matches, like I think again during our end of year and stuff, but I had a really hard time deciding between this one and another one, which was going to be included in like my overall like matches of the year. Um, I I really love this match. It only gets better to me as I rewatch it too, um, because these two are so like brutal and nasty to each other. Um, as we've talked about before, Jake doesn't necessarily hit people really really hard. Um, he hits Kento pretty hard. He I've seen him hit Naoya um pretty hard and and maybe Yuma to some degree too but he backs off pretty quickly but um Nakajima even during the lead up to um the match itself was getting Jake to actually like not pull his kicks which is pretty fucking cool um so I thought that was awesome so you see a lot of that here they go pretty hard with each other and um like you said like I love like the elbow strikes like Nakajima like the mask comes off and he comes undone and he doesn't take opportunities that he should to end a match, right? Like he focuses way too long on those elbow strikes to hurt Jake to protect Noah and his position as the helmsman, right? Um, which is like an incredible flaw in Katsuhiko's, you know, overall character, which is an amazing, you know, flaw for storytelling. So 
I loved I loved this match for that reason. There's a lot here. And this is, you know, it's a shame that Katsu left um, because I could have done so much more between these two um, in terms of other matches. Like, I think this match is, is truly tremendous. So yeah, I can't say enough about this match. It's it's one of my favorite parts of the reign, to be sure. And there was this is a reign of incredibly strong, great matches. Yeah, absolutely. Perfectly said. It, it was a toss-up. I really wanted to include a, a Jake match in my uh, end of year. So we'll see which one won out in the end. Uh, but this was really, 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 really high up there. So backstage, Jake showed a lot of respect towards Nakashima, actually. So he said, quote, to be honest, there's no one else in this industry who can kick like Katsuhiko Nakajima. It's not just kicking. It's also his presence. I've always called him Pandora's box. And I said he was being wasted because no one would push him like I did. That feeling became even more intense. So in this match, I defended my belt, which of course is important. But the joy of being able to really push Katsuhiko Nakajima this far in a singles match is overwhelmingly stronger, which is it's so cool to read that comment again, because he's getting at exactly what we just talked about. Like he knows that he got to push Katsuhiko to the edge and to get the mask to slip off, which is something that Jake obviously enjoys in virtually all of his matches, right? But it's hard when it's Katsuhiko to get that mask to slip off and he's someone that can do it. That's just an extremely Noah thing of him too, honestly. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, Nakajima did not have any comments after this match, but he clearly carried that loss in his heart and pressed forward with his own goals in making Noah a more exciting and interesting place, which we will discuss a little bit more as we go into Goshiyazaki's part of this episode. Um, and once again, I really, really just want everyone to uh, listen to that episode with Alicia and Lewis as they look back on Katsuhiko's career and as well listen to our episode on Nakashima versus Kento Miyahara, uh, Room at the Top, for some of our other thoughts on Nakajima's 2023. That is crucial listening, no matter where you are, what you're doing. I've listened <laughs> that. I actually listened to that episode again recently. It's just really good. <laughs> I don't often re-listen to our stuff because I have to listen to it while I edit and then I never want to listen to my voice ever again. But <laughs> I have listened to um, Room at the Top and Shinjuku Face on a Wednesday fairly often since we've recorded both of those because... Um, I am so incredibly proud of our work on them. Yeah, they're, they are fantastic. Um, and one thing actually you mentioned uh, just in our you know private conversations was Nakajima's departure from the company as his own form of freedom and faith or the um, core tenets of Misawaism. And for me, this really brought to mind uh, this New Year's calligraphy project that PKDX does every year with both AJPW and NOAA. And they asked each wrestler to draw calligraphy of a kanji that would become the theme for their year, uh, sort of like the Japanese version of resolutions, if you will. Um, for the year of 2023, Nakajima's kanji was movement or motion. Um, there was this clear need for movement in his life here, something he had been thinking about for quite some time before really deciding what that looked like. Um, Alicia, I really wanted to hear your thoughts on um, Nakajima's Misawaism and how that all relates. Oh, man. I, I think one of the first things I did, actually, when this was all happening, is I went back to look at what his New Year's calligraphy was, because I was like, I know that it's going to relate. Because you and I, I remember, like, this conversation so vividly, and I don't really know why, because you weren't even in my house yet when we were talking about this. He went back to his mom's house, and he was staying there for New Year's. 
and he was walking the paths of his old um like the paths of the old like jungle gym area where he would play in as a kid and then like he would take the paths like back from his mom's house to the karate dojo that he spent so much time in he was doing a lot of thinking about the past and that's something that he hates doing which he's turned into like a character that he doesn't like thinking about the past and i was thinking about that then i went back to look at what his calligraphy was and i saw that it was movement um or motion and like all of those things to me of course they're they're related like they can't not be related like he can't not have been like kind of laying the seeds for this for a while so yeah i (laughs) i'm not surprised um i guess in, in a way i think that we were talking a lot in 2022 about him not being used properly or there just being a lack of momentum for him that didn't make any sense and like jake even calls um attention to that quite a bit in their program that like he's being wasted and you know whatever and there's things that Katsuko does immediately within Noah to like change his circumstances, but then Katsuko is in the background, like making the the bigger changes to his circumstances, right? That we later find out about. So yeah, I think that this immediately brought up freedom and faith to me. Um, and the way that people reacted to it within the company immediately brought up freedom and faith to me because when he he said he wanted to leave, um, you'll notice that like none of the major players, like no one like was silent about it and no one was like, you know, being weird about it or difficult about it like people were very supportive of him our fuji was very supportive of him and no one like did the thing of chasing him after he left right like that's the part of freedom and faith that's really important is that when people want to leave you let them go and that's what happened with him right because he needs to do this for himself i think that this is like something that he could do because he understands misawaism and because he has also a very unique relationship to the wrestling industry that is very different than most other people's relationship to the wrestling industry. So yeah, movement motion makes sense. I think that for him, like he could have just chosen to go on being set for life in Noah, right? Like he could have been set there, whatever, being cycled in and out of title programs, whatever, what have you. But like, that's not really who he is, right? Like he's someone that is constantly thinking about how he can, achieve more go to the next level right so movement motion makes sense and it all relates back to misawaism yeah i think that's uh really lovely and i had translated just a bit of nakajima's final words in noah said backstage after that final match on october 28th in fukuoka if we wrestlers don't have dreams we won't be able to make our fans have dreams in that sense i don't really like using the word last but it really could be However, as a wrestler, I will continue to live my dream and deliver it to the fans. Thank you. I, th- I thought that was just a really lovely sentiment. And I really wanted to, to pass that on, especially after like hearing about Jake, you know, wrestling is full of dreams and everything. It's all, it's all just very related. And um, where Noah sits in a lot of their hearts is, is dreams and as they go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, this does leave the realm of Noah just a little bit, but lately Nakajima has been calling upon this idea of fighting with Tokan or uh, fighting spirit. He has adopted this sort of quote unquote style as his own and um, sort of to create his own Tokan style. The word Tokan itself is very tightly linked with New Japan, and he has been invoking um, Inoki in these very deliberate and meaningful ways, particularly by building a relationship with Inoki's old manager, Hisashi Shinma. Um, and I wanted to ask you, do you still feel that this does connect to his Misawaism and his time in Noah? Do you feel that time of Noah in what he's doing right now, or do you think he's sort of departing from that? 
I do think it's related to the Misawaism and his time in Noah in the sense that with everything that he has learned, right, from being a part of Noah and creating these type of stories, everything that he does is personal, right? Um, the personal will always find its way into his work. And what he's doing with the Tokan style um, that I think is being missed because people want to call him like, I don't know. I don't know what the fucking deal is lately yeah, with people a online. Heel, a yeah, little shit, a heel, a monster. Right, like Anoki cosplayer. Like, I don't understand like what the vibes are right now, right now. But like what he's doing is relating all of this deliberately back to his lineage within wrestling, right? He is from that line of Choshu into Sasaki and then himself. And then of course, Masa Saito um, is in that as well. And he is like firmly leaning on this in order to, um, you know, to, to kind of be this guy right now, who's a freelancer who can kind of be anywhere. We don't know, like there's so much shit going on in all Japan right now, who knows what's going on, but, um, and then invoking this, like this Tokan style um, and like leaning on his like direct heritage through new japan which he does have like that is part of like his overall wrestling lineage um through where he started that's his birthright right like that's that's where we can kind of talk about that that's part of his birthright um so i find it like he can do these things because of where uh, of how he spent his time within noah learning to take the personal and incorporating it into how he tells stories right this is his freedom and faith essentially he's just using different words because he's not in noah anymore but i think with the way that he is like he will never not carry diamond ring, right? Like dog tags around his neck. I think he carries Noah in the same way. Um, he's acutely aware of how Noah shaped him and shaped him, especially as a young man. And in that way, now this is just the more evolved Katsuhiko Nakajima, like really trying to lean on his lineage, which is very important to him. Um, we saw that at the beginning of all this when he was like going to visit Ricky Dozon statue and all that and like really trying to evoke all this very powerful in imagery. To me, it feels like very much Return of the King type of stuff. It's the type of um, storytelling he hasn't really been able to do in Noah, but in this way in leaving and then in being like a freelancer and working with All Japan and he's able to tell these stories about, you know, who he is and his lineage and where he comes from in a very different way. I think it's fascinating. I think it all comes from that place though. Like, I don't think he could really do any of this um, without Misawaism and without his time in Noah. I think that's perfectly said. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. That's really what I was hoping for <laughs> from that question, truly. So this does bring us, and actually it, it segs beautifully into our next uh, defense, who did not actually challenge Jake directly. Rather, Jake calls out Naomi Chimara Fuji um, after defeating Katsuko Nakajima, uh, stating that after experiencing the future of Noah in Kaito Kiyomiya and the quote-unquote strength of Noah in Katsuko Nakajima, he wanted to experience the history of Noah through Naomi Mara Fuji. This wasn't the first time Jake mentioned wanting to fight Marafuji either, uh, stating in that January YouTube video. The question is, what do you want to accomplish in Noah? And Jake said, I've mentioned some wrestlers that I'm interested in, but I think there will be other wrestlers that catch my eye as well as I fight more matches with other people. And when you think of Noah today, you think of Naomichi Marafuji. I have never dared to mention him by name, but I believe that something will surely be born when we face each other, something in my heart. Yeah, so that brings us to Jake calling out Marafuji, um, stating, actually, 
even if you've become rotten, you're still Marafuji, which is just kind of a horrible thing that he said. It was very rude of him. Uh, Marafuji does accept the match, stating that he was unhappy with Jake's quote-unquote helmsmanship, um, stating, the way you steer makes me seasick. Backstage, both Jake and Marafuji commented on the challenge. Jake said, do you know what will happen if I continue to hold on to this belt? I'm going to be standing it all together again on June 9th as GHC champion and as someone who's only been in NOAA for a short time. Well, more than a short time, but as someone who doesn't know anything about it yet. Is that really what you want? I don't think so. That's why the vice president went out of his way to accept my challenge. And Marafuji said, as I said in the ring, his way of steering the ship is sloppy. It's disgusting. It's making me seasick. I'll teach him a lesson. However, despite these harsh words, Marafuji spent most of the program flitting between this usual cheekiness and showing some respect towards Jake. Um, after winning the first preliminary match on April 22nd, Marafuji stated, Jake Lee is so interesting. He's big and strong. He's my type of wrestler. I'm going to take the belt from him. So come see me in Rogoku. And this is just so Marafuji is that there is... And I'll say this again, there's no such thing as heels and faces in Noah. Um, do away with that immediately if you're, you know, you're looking to get in this promotion. But it's perfectly encapsulates that he can say, you know, he's my type of wrestler. I'm going to have so much fun with this while also saying that, like, he's disgusting and sloppy. I hate the way he's I hate what he's doing with the place. It's making me sick. Like, that's just who Marafuji is. He balances is like flawlessly. He's like a flirt. Like with the way that he talks yeah. about people all the time, like there's always like this level of, I think, flirtation um, with certain people. And you definitely got a lot of that in this oh, um, yeah. program, <laughs> a lot of this in that program. Yeah, because we're, we're getting to him demanding to bring Jake, um, he wants Jake to bring him flowers to celebrate his 25th anniversary of straight up stating, like, bring me flowers, Jake Lee. Hey, Jake Lee, bring me flowers. Listen carefully. Bring me flowers. Give Naomichi Marafuji his flowers in his 25th anniversary year. So yeah, very flirty. And I think being a little bit tongue-in-cheek there too, because the comment about, like, Marafuji being rotten, right? Like, this is something that is very present in Marafuji's own mind. Like, he doesn't shirk away from the fact that his body is not the way that it used to be and that's something we've talked about extensively on this podcast um you know he's he's always dealing with these different injuries that have cropped up and some are more historical some are more recent this year he had i think the surgery on his um his feet this year i think it was um so he's always dealing with some new injury that he's got to kind of focus on and take some time to deal with um so i think the give me or bring me my flowers thing is very much a tongue-in-cheek comment as well for where he is with like his, you know, his anniversary and stuff like that. And just being older, he's, it, it was very, the comments were very funny. Yeah, they were. And, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Cause I mean, it, it is his 25th anniversary year. So it does come up again and again, but um, actually one thing sort of going off of that, that I found really interesting was uh, the next day backstage, Jake actually sort of, um, he also pays a lot of respect to Marafuji and even states like Marafuji is currently in his quote unquote prime, which I find really important um, when asked to elaborate, he states. He has experienced both the most sweet and sour of times and that continues to this day. Of course, every part of his body is damaged, but more than the physical aspect. I think his mentality is the most mature as it's ever been. That's why he can say such masterful things. You can tell by listening to him. 
That's why I said what I said. But in a way, you know, I forgot to add that in a sense. I'm in my prime as well. So yeah, I thought that was that was interesting to note is that Jake sees this man as being in his prime shape because he is so um, clever and he is, you know, at this mental maturity. Um, on the 29th, Marafuji won the final preliminary match with this brand new three-stage Tiger King, which targets the head, the body, and then the side of the head in rapid succession. Um, this is not the first nor last time Marafuji has pushed for evolution of himself in preparation for a major match. We will actually see that very, very soon. Um, and as, as this sort of story goes on, um, and it's just so indicative of his character as well as what jake was just saying about him being in his prime he is still evolving which is just really really cool and um backstage mara fuji states well i don't think jake lee will bring me my flowers so i will have to grab them for myself their press conference was on may 1st a few days before their match on may 4th Mara Fuji opened up with a long speech about the sheer size difference between Jake and himself, calling on his past history of fighting wrestlers much bigger than himself, including his time fighting as both a junior and a heavyweight, um, before going on to say one of the most Mara Fuji things I've ever heard him say. <laughs> Quote, people often say I'm a genius or a symbol of Noah, but I've been fighting with insecurity and a sense of inferiority for a long time. And I think that's why I've become so strong. It's been a while since I've had my head and body in perfect condition like this. And I'm ready to take the belt from Jake Lee. Yeah, it's like the most Marfuji quote ever. Yeah, it's just <laughs> so him. I was waiting for your reaction to that. Yeah. So. And then Jake Lee's own opening statements really drive home the themes of Noah's history and Jake's curiosity towards the promotion. Jake says, quote, I am a man who grew up without watching wrestling at all. But even though I didn't watch wrestling growing up, my classmates around me would show me videos of Marafuji and tell me how great he was. I started watching wrestling again because of Namichi Marafuji, who was standing right next to me. It's like a dream come true to have a match like this with someone like that. It is really only recently that I have been able to fight using my body as a weapon. And even then, I still feel like I am not ready yet. I will experience many things in the title match. It's not just about technique. History is also a part of it. I want to know that history. Marafuji asked Jake for flowers once again, and Jake asked if he can just bring him his flowers on his actual anniversary, August 28th. Marafuji says yes, but he wants flowers for the title match as well. Of course he does, yeah. Yeah, of course. He wants two flowers. If that's on the table, like, come on. <laughs> Jake ends on this lovely sentiment about wrestling not being about the two wrestlers in the ring. Um, it's about, you know, so much more than that. And I wanted, um, I wanted you to read that because I think it speaks to not only Jake as a person and a character, but to Noah as a whole and, you know, as Marafuji as a whole and why he's just such a good fit for the promotion. Well, regardless of whether it's a big or small show, the two of us are certainly always in the spotlight. At the end of the day, which one of us will be standing in the spotlight? Probably me. But that moment is not created by just the two of us. It is created by the referee the seconds, the audience, and everyone. I'm just in the middle of it. So audience, let's create it. Let's create that space together. That's what I always think. Yeah, I, I just thought that was a really beautiful sentiment. And the fact that that came out in the press conference with Mara Fuji really meant a lot to me. And I, it really resonated with me. So I was curious on your thoughts there too. Automatically makes me think of, I, be I believe it was Misawa 
and Kobashi's big GHC match. That must have won some awards or something. Because I remember Nishinaga-san being thanked by Misawa and Kobashi, I believe, publicly for his role in that match, right? And Nishinaga-san is one of the greatest referees to ever do it, right? So that makes sense that they thanked him for his role in that match because the referee has a more important role to play in a match than we think. It makes me think of that. It, it is interesting that it comes out with Mara Fuji, who I think too also has that very holistic view of wrestling, right? And how all of it comes together, not just how you are in the ring and what you bring into the ring and the moves that you do, but also um, who is there um, on the side, who's in the ring with you, who's the ref. Like that is how Mara Fuji talks about and thinks about wrestling. He's very holistic in the way that he thinks about it. If you go to our episodes, um, Maru Ken part one and two, when we're actually reading some quotes from Mara Fuji on like his actual wrestling philosophies, um, you will hear how he thinks about wrestling holistically. So it's not a coincidence. I think that that kind of comes out when he's with Mara Fuji. And in that way, I think you can really see how much, um, just in that brief period of time, how much of being around these figures in Noah is like starting to permeate with Jake, right? Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And then um, after sort of that um, sentiment, they take their picture together, but they decide to pose in front of the audience. It's a live um, audience recorded one and they um, both sort of stand together. It's just it's a really, really um, good moment. Actually, I think that was the first um, live press conference that they brought back uh, audience participation and, and the audience to be there. So it was just a really nice sentiment that they all sort of stood together for that photo. So that brings us to the match itself, which I know you recently rewatched in deciding uh, your matches of the year. So we will discuss whether it actually made the list, but I did want to know sort of your thoughts of Jake and Marafuji in this match. I just adore this match. Everyone always has the tone of surprise when Marafuji pulls out these big matches and to which I will always say like, yes, like he, this is how he wrestles. Like he can wrestle like this. He is Naomichi Marafuji. Like this should not be shocking he just can't wrestle like this all the time because then he would have had to retire five years ago um like I don't know why we have to keep having this conversation but it's such a tremendous match they told it sort of beautifully Mara Fuji was able to really I think tap into like a lot of his wily sort of like junior past in order to like chop Jake down which was like Kaito, like the the fucking guidebook was right here. You just had to ask, like your number one. Literally, just had to ask. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like such a perfect match in that way because like Mara Fuji is so incredible um, at how he can execute and conceptualize a game plan. Like that's the the type of wrestler he is. The pacing is outstanding. There's some incredible Shuranui spots in this where like the form on both of them is like outstanding. Like it just like Jake looks so good in this too like he also has like a Shuranui stopper in this like there's some there's some good Shuranui stoppers over the course of Noah history um but Jake has a great Shuranui stopper in this which is so cool it just it's just such a great match it's so Marafuji in all of the ways um that make a great Marafuji match he has a great use of the ref in this which like yeah. I think in any other context would be annoying for people because it would be such a stupid 
little heel move in a lot of ways. Like it's something that like would be probably more common in like a bullet club match, the way that he uses the ref, but they make it work so well that the match or rather the move comes off as really, really entertaining the way that he like forces the ref to be a part of his drop kick to surprise, to surprise Jake. Um, It's just like, it's everything I love about Noah GHC heavy title matches. Like it just felt like a Noah GHC heavy title match and you could feel like how important Marafuji was the entire way through that match too which is just as important as everything that Marafuji did for Jake because Marafuji did a lot to put Jake over obviously but Marafuji is someone who does not often get his flowers <laughs> in the way that he deserves which we'll talk about later on in the episode that they did that for each other you know and like that's really really important is that Jake got to um, learned the history of Noah through this man, right? Um, he is Misawa's um, last performing attendant in Noah. Obviously, Kotaro is still around, but he's not in Noah right now. He got to learn the history of Noah through Marafuji and become that much more Noah through this experience. Um, and Marafuji got to remind people of who, exactly who he is. And it's so annoying that he has to constantly remind people of exactly who he is. It's just a, it's a wonderful, big match, Marafuji affair. And Jake got to take all of the the great high points from it, which was exactly what we would have wanted from that type of match. Perfectly said. And um, after the match, Jake does apologize for what he said when he made that challenge, uh, stating, hey, Namichi Marafuji, wait a minute. You aren't rotten. What you created here isn't rotten either. I might have said that to provoke you and the audience, but it's not true. And then backstage, we get one of my absolute favorite backstage moments of the year where Marafuji states. Well, I lost. I really did think I could win today. Hey, wasn't this the right time to win? Well, results speak for themselves, but I'll keep on going. And one more thing, Jake Lee, thanks for coming to Noah. And during Jake's comments, a reporter brings Marafuji's final statement up where Jake responds, thank you for having me. It's just so heartwarming and just so good. And that that was really the moment where you sort of realize, like, Jake probably is going to stick around. Like, I was I was trying to uh, not get too attached because I was very nervous at this point. Uh, we're in May at this point. Um, but I, I was getting very attached to who Jake is and Noah and, and his own I am Noah story. And that's where you can really, really see it take form. Yeah, like it's, it would have been very easy to, even through the, the Katsuhiko fight, to be like, all right, like, we can't get excited. He will probably leave. So we just can't, you know, can't get attached because he is still talking about wanting to go overseas. And that's his right. He has every right to want to go overseas. Um, if you go to our Q&A with him, he talks about um, some of that in there. And he's talked about, you know, places he's wanted to go um, as well. So you... You just have to appreciate that that's like a goal of his and something that's important to him. But this was where it kind of felt like, okay, like there might be a purpose to this. Like they might be turning his comments from the beginning of the year into kayfabe, into a story. Um, and that's, this is definitely like the turning point where it's like, all right, we, can't, we still can't get too attached. But 
um, there might be something to it, especially with that, you know, thanks for coming to Noah. Thank you for having me type of moment between them. Um, Jake, like turning his gloves from red to the green, you know, you have all these yeah, little happen this match. Yeah. That That's happened true. here after the Kotsukiko match going into this is when Jake turns his gloves red to green. And like, those are the, the little symbolic things, right. That make you start thinking, well, oh, there might be, you know, that, that, that comment in January might've been a plant to make you go like, oh, I've got to watch because he could only be there for a few matches and he's going to leave that it, like it we'll see. We'll see how this all continues to play out. But um, yeah, certainly here was the turning point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so while Marfuji did not win the GHC in his 25th anniversary year, it did not stop him from celebrating it. On June 20th, Marafuji had a surprise press conference and, of course, did not tell anyone what it would be about, um, causing us all to panic for a few days, uh, just like he likes it. Um, however, at the conference, he did announce his 25th anniversary show at Kirken Hall under the title True Flight, uh, where he was asked a few questions and he does state. The question is, what are your thoughts on celebrating your 25th anniversary? And Marafuji says... I would like to say that it feels like it was yesterday that it made my debut, but it really was a long time ago. And rather than celebrating my 25th anniversary, I feel like I have been fighting Noah for a long time. 25 years feels like a long time to me as the landscape changes dramatically over the years. He also says, for the 20th anniversary, I wanted to bring back those who left Noah, but this time the show will be smaller in Korokin rather than in Ryogoku. But I'm sure it will bring people in. We will raise the ticket price a bit, aiming for a full house at Quarkin. As for the match card, to be clear, this time it will not be a reunion like the 20th anniversary, but I intend to fill Quarkin with just one match announcement. No, that's not an intention. It's a promise. It felt so much like a, that's not a threat. It's a promise, but it actually was both. It was a threat (laughs) and a promise. Because Marafuji accepted Will Osprey's proposal for a match together, and they did sell out Kurrican Hall with only one match on the card, and then it, you know, filled in, and we had more matches. But after the show on September 17th, Marafuji was asked about this sold-out audience and had some really incredible words to say about it. Well, I have felt the weight of each ticket over the years, and the fact that we had a sold-out crowd today shows that there is potential in wrestling, and we need to communicate that potential to the world. There are many good wrestlers in our company. They put on a lot of good matches. It's just that their potential is not being conveyed to the public. I happen to communicate a little more than they do, which is why I am still here today. But if each one of us could do this, we would always have a super capacity crowd. If each one of us could do this, we could always fill the Budokan or even the Dome. I believe that if each one of us is aware of what we are doing, it will lead to the development of Noah. That's why I'm going to keep working hard from now on. I lost today. I'm going to work hard and make everything perfect. If I could have beaten Jake Lee, won the belt, competed in N1, won N1, and beat him today, then my wrestling career would have been complete. But then maybe I would have retired. So in the end, I'm happy about that. Very Marafuji uh, sentiments there, but I did really like what he said about, you know, wrestlers needing to communicate. And that's actually something Keno talks about constantly. Um, the two of them are very, very aligned on that, which is something that Keno has also mentioned. Um, he, you know, he and Marafuji are always at each other's necks, but at the end of the day, they are very, very aligned in their goals of communicating the potential of wrestling and the potential of Noah. But of course, uh, no Naomichi Marafuji section would be complete without talking about this main event match coming up with Kota Ibushi for the Ariaki Arena. 
So after his match on December 2nd at Noah the Best, Kota Ibushi made a shocking appearance in Noah's ring, calling out to Namichi Marafuji. Marafuji comes to the ring to greet him, and Ibushi issues a bold statement, claiming he is free on January 2nd. Marafuji pays homage to the famous scene between Mitsuhara Misawa and Toshiaki Kawada by paraphrasing Misawa's famous words, accepting Kawada's challenge for Destiny 2005, stating, Ibushi, I'll be waiting for you in Ariaki's ring. So with that, this, the match was set. A few hours later, it was announced that a special singles match between Kota Ibushi and Naomichi Marafuji would be the main event for Ariaki Arena on January 2nd. We will get deeper into the discussion a little later with its implications for the whole of Noah and the current storyline we are dealing with right now um, about the overarching identity of Noah. However, first I wanted to present some translations and facts about Marafuji's role in this story that we will likely return to during that discussion. Marafuji posted multiple times on his Twitter about this decision, speaking very firmly and standing his ground on the choice, stating, of course, I'm not looking down on the GHC, but now that I'm in this position, I'm going to commit to it. To begin with, my dream of being a professional wrestler came from my own ego. And even when I became a professional wrestler, there are times where I want to show that ego. And he sort of quotes himself here, um, stating at the end, I want to fulfill my dreams here in Noah and show them to the world. It is also important to note that on Twitter, Marafuji has expressed interest in defeating Kota Ibushi and challenging the winner of the GHC for the belt after Ariaki. We will discuss this a bit more with Shiyazaki, but moves like this are deliberately meant to focus and put value on the belt as something worth fighting for. Marafuji is not truly not placing himself above the GHC here. I cannot stress that enough. Noah, president and director um, Narihiro Takeda released a detailed note on December 3rd about the decision, taking, and I quote, sole responsibility for the main event placement. He made special note that his motivation for this decision came from the November 9th episode of Rina Matsuki's radio show on the platform Artist Spoken, in which Marafuji mentioned that he would likely retire in about five years. And he states, Quote, frankly speaking, Marafuji's official retirement match is still a long ways off. However, wrestling is also a battle against the body. If the remaining time on his road to retirement does not allow him to always be at his 100% best for himself and for the audience, then this Ariaki Arena event could easily be a turning point in the final chapter of Marafuji. And this really just drives home the point of wanting to give Marafuji the main event spotlight that he deserves while he's still in the quote unquote peak or the prime that Jake Lee spoke about. So Marafuji has taken to this story extremely well. Um, during Noah's show on December 10th, he teamed up with Keno and Go Shiyazaki against the trio of Manu Soya, Daiki Inaba, and Masakita Mia. During this match, there is palpable tension between Marafuji and Keno, despite being on the same side. It's quite masterful the way these two interact with each other as the match goes on, and I highly recommend it for many reasons. However, what is greatest interest here is Marafuji's finish. He uses all of his wiles to steal a tag from Keno as he sets up for the PFS on Daiki Inaba. And Marafuji comes in and delivers a modified Kamigoe, which he later names the Kamitorao or the uh, God Tiger King. 
He celebrates in a playful manner and leaves the arena. And Keno is screaming at him all the while. Um, however, Marfuji's not a heel here. Again, Noah does not have heels or faces. Um, and when he uses the god Tiger King again, it's on December 17th against LJ Cleary. Backstage, he's asked about the move and he calls it his like original special move that he developed specifically to combat Ibushi, stating... Quote, I will continue to stand here in the Noah ring. My opponent is the exact opposite of that. So I will win and show off the ring that I have spent so long protecting. I want to do it for all of my juniors too. This shows that while he is all too happy to aggravate Keno, which, you know, who wouldn't be really, uh, Marafuji is not fighting against Noah. Rather, he has created a narrative that matches the overall theme of the show, fighting for Noah's honor against outside enemies. While I don't necessarily agree with the booking of the overall card, I really wanted to highlight the work that Marafuji is doing in particular to create a main event that is, at its heart, still about Noah as a company. And I just wanted to ask um, how you felt about how this compares to the feeling of last year's main event double um, situation. And you know, straight up, let's uh, let's talk about how this match between Kota Ibushi and Mara Fuji is being subtitled as Destiny 2024. Uh, I mean, I guess with the the double main event situation, I quickly threw up my hands at, at last year's too, because I understand why symbolically it's really important for the GHC to be the true main event. However, anything can be the main event in your mind. Like, no one had to watch Shinsuke versus Muda. You could have just turned off the program after that, right? Like, after Keno and Kaito, right? So that's your main event, because you didn't watch the two older guys after it, right? I think I feel that way, ultimately, because of the level of discourse quickly beats me down to, like, where I just don't fucking care. Um, So maybe that's not necessarily the most fair take on it all, but this year, I think, felt way more complicated than last year, because initially it was like the shock of like oh fuck like the reason and we'll talk about this more when we get to it but Keno and Soya main eventing worked because it was Noah middle gen guys betting on themselves and we needed to see that coming out of this event right so that's where it felt disappointing but I'm always of the opinion of like Mara Fuji didn't do things like this for himself for the majority of his career he could have had a completely different life and career if Misawa hadn't tragically passed away when he did, which very much affected Marafuji's choices and everything he was able to do, Marafuji could have left. He could have said, like, I'm going to go do whatever. I'm going to freelance. I'm going to go travel to different promotions. I'm going to go and have a stint in America. He chose not to do it. He chose to stay with Noah, even when the company was, like, on the verge of collapsing for many years. So I just, I, I, I have a very hard time begrudging him anything especially when i think you can easily make the whole you know abushi marafuji match a special main event in your mind and consider the true main event to be the ghc heavy like i don't think that these things are that complicated (laughs) i do think that that, like comparing it to destiny situation is also not the right comparison people should stop doing that it's not fair to the situation that was happening around destiny um, but also like just the destiny shit in general. I hate it. Um, because and I don't like that Marafuji used the line with Ibushi because really? I, yeah, because there's no and this is not this is nothing disrespectful 
Dakota Ibushi at all, but him and Mara Fuji have no heat together. It's just a random big match, which is completely fine. Like whatever, like if this generates like what they're hoping to generate in terms of ticket sales and people watching it, that's great. But Mara Fuji has his Kawada already and it's Kenta. So it's disappointing that like they couldn't have had that moment and they gave it to Ibushi. I know Mara Fuji's turning it into like, he's he's an outsider. He's not of Noah and like whatever. And like Ibushi has some history in Noah. Like Ibushi's part of like a lot of really good Noah tags and stuff, right? Like, he's got a little bit of history in Noah, but it just doesn't have heat. And that's and, like, to me, like Destiny, like, you can go back and listen to our Destiny episode with Jason. Like Destiny is very, you know, sacred ground for me in terms of like my experience and relationship to Noah. So using the line and like that moment and, and drawing on the comparisons and doing a t-shirt and using the green D for, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I showed you I earlier. Today, actually. Yeah. Oh, it's ugly. It's so bad. But um, using that for Kota Ibushi feels like a waste. It's like you already have your Kawada and it's Kenta. It's never not going to be Kenta. So that to me is a bit of a waste. So at this point, I feel like it to me, Nothing is going to change the outcome of what happens with Keno and Soya because Keno and Soya are going to take care of it because it's the storytelling there is is airtight. If you have faith in Keno and you pay attention to Keno, then you then your feelings uh, really nothing. should not have wavered all that much. Nothing but, but faith like, in that man. <laughs> yeah, nothing but faith in terms of what he's able to demonstrate. I think what always will disappoint me though is that every fucking year we have to have a new debate and dilemma and drama over the order of these fucking matches when again anything can be whatever you want it to be in your brain you just don't have to watch whatever this the super main event is like who gives a shit also it disappoints me deeply that people and there were some like there were some fans japanese and western who were kind of getting in line with this but again it's like mar fuji should never have to stand there and try to tell you who he is and and never should have to demonstrate like how he's never fucking done anything like this or taking these opportunities for himself. Like we have a ticking clock with him at all times. We'll be lucky if we can stretch five more years out of this man. And Takeda's note was pretty clear about that. That's the part that I think is still bothering me and upsetting me is that it's not fair that Marafuji has to constantly remind people who he is and like beg and barter for things that other people get no problem when Mara Fuji gave up his career to save this promotion yeah yeah that's that's literally exactly it is that it's just frustrating to even you know in this this storyline is really about Mara Fuji being able to stand in that main event and he deserves to stand in that main event and we still have to argue about it um like Takeda still had to argue about it and it's just it's it's hard but um I think there's a lot of work that Mara Fuji is putting into you know really still making this about Noah and, and that really just speaks to who he is So after facing Marafuji, Jake immediately started teasing in the ring who he would choose next, saying uh, Sugiwa, which is like next is. But of course, that sounds suspiciously similar to uh, Sugiwa, which is like Sugi is. 
Um, he was also asked backstage, now that you felt the history of Noah, what would you like to feel next? And he responds, that is a very thought provoking question. The future, the strength and the history, there's got to be a lot more like determination, maybe. We learned who the determination of Noah is on May 14th after a match between GLG versus Kaito Sugira, Atsushi Kotoge, and Seiki Yoshioka. Jake takes the microphone to nominate his next challenger. At first, he considered letting Kaito challenge again, but stated that Kaito did not impress him during that match, which was the match with the infamous shit spider guard that you talked about, Alicia. Um, <laughs> he then turns to the entrance where Sugira is about to leave and says, Sugira, before you go home, it's you. You're the one. Simply put, I want to do this with you. Sugira plays a bit dumb, pointing at himself in surprise, and the whole crowd just roars for Sugira. He enters the ring and accepts Jake's nomination by mimicking Jake's little bow, and Jake bows back. And just like that, the title match was set for June 17th. Uh, backstage, Sugira gave some of his starting thoughts on the match. Well, I can't really speak highly of Jake Lee. He is a great champion, but he's only defended twice, right? I don't want him to feel like he understands Noah just because of that. I'm going to show him that there is someone like me as well, which he hasn't dealt with before. However, while his comments are relatively calm, this build became increasingly violent in short order, showing exactly what Sugira meant by Jake not having encountered, quote, someone like him in Noah. On May 28th, the tension between the two is palpable. Sugira at the end catches Anthony Green in a front neck lock and forces Jake to watch. Backstage, Sugira mused on how he wanted to finish Jake off with like the same tone as someone talking about what they wanted for dinner. It's it's really funny. Um, what should I do? Should I squeeze the life out of him with the front neck lock or should I bend his leg back by the ankle until it snaps? There are so many different patterns I could come up with. Their next preliminary match on May 31st resulted in a brawl spilling to the outside of the ring. And then on June 10th, Jake got a win and violently sent Sugira flying out of the ring with an FBS. Backstage, Jake admired Sugira's ferocity, stating, damn, how old is he? 51, 52? Oh, it's never a dull moment around here. Where can, else can you find such energetic old guys? Next time we'll be our singles. I'm going to take it to the extreme. I'm going to kick you in the face. This brings us to the press conference on June 15th. Sugira opens by stating that Jake hasn't quite given it his all yet, and he wants to bring that out of him during the match in Nagoya. Jake, on the other hand, describes Sugira as, quote, a monster in human skin, showing a lot of reverence towards the sheer level of vitality and violence that Sugira shows in the ring. The question asked is Nakajima and Mara Fuji, who have supported Noah in recent years, have been defeated in title matches so far. And Sugira says, I'm the third, right? Well, it's not over yet. I don't think of myself as a last resort. I'm just going to finish it here. Yeah, so I, I actually really liked that he said that he wasn't a last resort and that he saw more like, you know, main eventers in Noah that could go against Jake. I just thought that was really kind of neat that um, he was like pushing this story forward, uh, kind of, you know, made it a little obvious that, yeah, Sugir is probably losing, but still it was, it was nice. <laughs> 
One thing worth noting about this challenge is that Shinjiro Otani sent a video message of encouragement to Sugira. Otani has been recovering from a cervical spinal injury ever since April 10th, 2022, after suffering a terrible accident during a match with Sugira in 01. Sugira has a very close relationship with Otani and has been carrying the weight of that injury very heavily, um, especially you can see it on his face since it happened to receive an encouraging message like this from Otani telling him to go win the title meant a lot to him. And that just plays into the match um, as, as it goes forward. And that's just something really important to keep in mind. I think it's in the, um, the VTR as well. Uh, they play some of the message um, from Otani in the VTR. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I thought, I thought so. Yeah. It hangs over. Um, I don't, it, it does hang over, I guess that part of the match, like you said, um, since that accident happened, it, I think it has like fundamentally changed um, Sugira. So yeah, there's there's always that kind of lingering in the background. Yeah. And that brings us to June 17th um, in the singles match between Sugira and Jake Lee. And um, I actually didn't remember this match in like the whole scheme of um, Jake Lee's defenses just because they had all been so good. And I remembered that it was really really good i remember the two fbs attempts and um with only the second one being successful because that was just insane um but i i had you rewatching alicia because i was like you you need to tell me your thoughts on it um because i i was busy writing this and couldn't quite remember everything yeah you know this was one too where i was surprised that i couldn't remember it because um, I remembered watching it. I remember being very excited about it. But then when I realized like when it took place, it made sense to me why I couldn't remember it. I was like in complete like burnout crisis during yeah, that period. So it just it just makes sense. But um, at any rate, rewatching this, I think like was was really good because I think I actually enjoyed the match so much more this time around than even the first time I watched it. Um yeah, it, it's a really, very, very, very good match. It's really, really well built. I think it would have more people talking about it if the crowd wasn't as kind of strange, um, which, and, and you know how I feel about like, you know, leaving that kind of stuff to crowd activity, yeah. noise level, whatever. It doesn't really make a factor in how I feel about things, but I could see that being a factor in how like generally how people felt about that match. Um, the crowd does get like kind of quiet at points, but I don't think it's really a reflection of necessarily um, the match as a whole it, it it's incredibly watchable especially if you're watching it I think on Wrestle Universe but they have these incredible opening exchanges that are so interesting because they're both approaching each other with like different um different backgrounds in mixed martial arts right which is really cool um those opening exchanges are so interesting and so fun to watch um and they're it's just really cool to watch someone like Jake work against someone like Sugira with Sugira's background and you know Sugira was someone who um failed to qualify for the Olympics three times you know like he's incredibly um he's incredibly skillful um as an athlete so it was just really cool to watch him work at that high level um and then for the rest of the match like Jake does such like masterful building in terms of like targeting Sugira's arm. He does a lot of really interesting things with holds to try to um, slow Sugira down and really like affect um, 
you know, his offense. Um, and it all looks really, really fucking cool in execution. Jake does a lot of really, really interesting, really savvy things um, during that match. I think you actually get to see a little bit more of the Machiavellian side of Jake Lee come out during that match because of how clever he is in um in escaping the different holds that Sugira puts him in. He does a lot of really clever escapes on the ankle lock with Sugira and then transitions into holds with Sugira, trapping Sugira in holds, right? So I think you see a little bit more of the Machiavellian Jake Lee come out in that match. Um, but it's a really clever, well-built match. Um, and I recommend that if you haven't seen it in a minute or if you felt like you were on the fence about how you felt about it um, when you first viewed it, Watch it again. I think it's even better when once we're removed, I think, from like watching it in live time. Yeah, I think I th- think you raised, I mean, you make the match sound phenomenal. I want to go rewatch it immediately. But that's really interesting about, you know, like Jake applying that Machiavelli in the clever um, ways, especially, you know, after fighting Mara Fuji, who is, you know, the clever wrestler. So that's that's sort of really cool to sort of see that progression uh, in that way and then yeah like with crowd noise especially during matches with a lot of grappling Noah fans tend to just be very locked in um during those matches the quietness never really speaks to the quality of the match they just tend to be really intense and, and focused on it and um but yeah I, I do sometimes especially like as we get further down crowd noise becomes more and more of a plot point um in this storyline so for for Jake especially so after the match, um, Jake states uh, backstage on Sugira. Quote, there are a lot of things I want to say, but in one word, he is a monster. But today, when the timing was right, I was able to get a three count from this monster. I guess I'm one of the monsters too now. I thought that was just cute. It was a, it was a fun little uh, fun little backstage. And then Sugira was uh, backstage as well. It was just very, very I am Noah. <laughs> Quote, over the past 23 years in this business, many things have happened. I find myself carrying things on my back. It also becomes a family thing after 23 years. When you stand in the ring, you're just a professional wrestler. But when you do this much, different things start to take over your feelings. However, the weight is not unpleasant and I'm not falling over yet. Thank you. I lost today. Um, Both of these comments I really love. I think with um, Jake saying, I guess I'm one of the monsters too now. It's like it's like this really cute way for him to um acknowledge once again that he is a part of this promotion now. He's not this outsider, um, you know, viewing himself as like, you know, I, I saw a lot of people incorrectly kind of braving him as like a conqueror, which was never what Jake Lee was going to be coming into this promotion. I think people got really worked up over his nickname. Yeah, um to his, his nickname is the good-looking emperor the good-looking emperor um emperor like for him it's and i talked to justin nipper about this actually from um write that down with fumi saito the emperor word is is not meant again like you're not meant to read into this like on a very psychological level with him which i know it's a lot it's very nuanced i know that's kind of difficult to know like what what am i meant to read into versus what i'm not meant to read to but um, you, the worst, the use of the word emperor is just meant to sound cool. It's it's just a cooler word than king at that just point, right? <laughs> Jake is really tall, very imposing. Um, we're used to someone like Takayama using emperor, right? Takayama is very tall, very imposing, right? So, um, that's where 
that's where that's coming from. That it's not meant to mean anything. He's not meant to be this like outside domineering dark emperor conqueror of Noah. Um, and I think you pick up on that when you start to pay attention to these backstages and what he is saying and what people like Sugira is saying as well, or like Marafuji, etc. Um, so yeah, I think Jake having that moment of like, I guess I'm one of the monsters too. It's like he, he defeated the wall. He defeated that guy. Sugira is that guy for so many of them, including Marafuji, right? So, um, he gets to have that moment of like, I guess I'm one of the monsters too now, which is like, yeah, like you're, you're one of those guys now, like you're part of the promotion, which is great. And then Sugira talking about family. I think that was so lovely because Noah, um, as strange as it can be, um, is a family. And Noah is very much still run like a family business. And that comes from the ethos of Giant Baba and the way that he ran um, all Japan. And I would say that there's a lot of that in all Japan even today as well. But um, him, you know, talking about 23 years and family, but also um, feeling the weight of Noah and, you know, his I am Noah, right? Feeling the weight of that, um, but not necessarily being lost to it. That is like very unique to Sugira's sort of um, relationship to the GHC, but also to Noah. Um, it's very different than when we're talking about someone like Amara Fuji or even someone like a Kenta, if we're talking about people in like the real Noah um, sort of era of, of Noah, right? Like he is the one that does not find himself lost to the GHC heavy and and doesn't necessarily find that it takes over him. Like it doesn't have like the Shiazaki effect on him, right? Who's the one that is like completely owned by um, the symbol of the belt and what that means to him and the weight of legacy. Like those things don't have the same effect on Sugira because of his own unique relationship to Noah um, and how he, you know, what he brings to the promotion. So it's really interesting to see him reflect on these things um, in his backstage. Um, so yeah, just one of my favorite, I think, backstages actually of this crop of backstages. It's crazy how like these backstages, especially uh, this stretch with Marafuji, um, just like these builds in general, Marafuji, Sugira, and Shiazaki just really sum up their careers in Noah. And it really is just a perfect lens in order to get that like full I am Noah story um, through Jake's reign. It's just really masterful how they do that. And you can just get that whole thing for Sugira in this one backstage. It's really like I said, masterful, just the way that they do it. It's just really cool and makes Noah's storytelling just so rewarding. If you just give it some effort, yeah. <laughs> just if you just give it a try <laughs> and, and really like look into these backstages and, and just, you know, find the people to listen to. And it, it, it really is just incredible. Like there's really nothing like it. So um, after on June 20th, it was announced that Sugira had been diagnosed with a lenticular supplication. Did I say that right? Okay. It's More or less. Yeah, it's a dislocated lens um, in his eye and he would need to be absent from at least two shows while he had uh, surgery and recover. This did mean that he had to miss Keno's anniversary show, which we were really sad about, but um, he did return in short order and he was able to make Marafuji's anniversary show, which we were really worried yeah. about. Yeah, we were really worried about that one. Uh, but he has since been recovering well and his eye just looks better and better each day. He's looking pretty good now. Going into Ariaki, he's like the one of the only ones and like really the only one of this episode other than Keno and Soya, which we'll talk about, who's not fighting an outsider. <laughs> 
Um, I guess in some ways he is fighting an outsider, um, but more someone who is coming into the promotion and debuting for the promotion. And that is the um, risen MMA fighter turned wrestler, Oka Sasaki. And there really just is something to be said for the fact that he is this um, pretty high profile debut match for a young and promising wrestler for Noah. He is becoming that wall once again. And that just really is who he is to Noah. And I, I love that. I still think that this match, like, much like you, I don't like the Ariaki card at all for a variety of reasons. Um, especially once they got everybody else on the card, I just was, I don't know. I have, I have a lot of frustrations with the Ariaki card. I'm not happy. But this, from the moment they announced it, was like, this is perfect. This is the perfect use of Sugira. This is such an, a cool, like, what a way to debut like a new, like, MMA fighter turned professional wrestler in Oka Sasaki who has a really cool story and like an emotional sort of story in terms of why he wants to be a professional wrestler now he's such a doll I'm like really excited to get to know him yeah. more and to um he's a he's a Nosawa Rongai project of course and we saw him debut on Monday Magic but um this is such a good match for both of them it's such an honor to debut against Takashi Tsukira during a, a big New Year show at Ariaki Coliseum right um, but then like for Sugira, like this is exactly what he should be doing um, at this stage of his career. I am always worried about his eyes. He still needs more surgery on both of his eyes. And thank God, like he can still wrestle and he still looks great and he can still go. But this is such a great use of him right now as to like put over um, these guys coming in like Oka Sasaki and um, still being able to have like a really solid like singles match on a card like this. And I'm someone who usually is like, I, I think tags are better anyway, but like, I'm really excited <laughs> about a singles match as it turns out. So yeah, this will be like the one match um, besides Keno and Soya that I'm like really, truly excited about. Yeah. And those are the, the most Noah matches of all of them. So that sure does say something, but, um, and we'll talk about that in a bit as well. But while we are talking about Marfuji Sugira, um, that is our real Noah. So, um, no real Noah update would be complete without an update on Kenta and his 2023 and his own journey through pro wrestling. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to kind of decide with you through this update, where we land on what Kenta's I Am Noah is this year. But I'll run <laughs> through some things that he's been up to um, and give some thoughts at the end here. But of course, Kenta's year began on January 1st, 2023, with the Maruken reunion at the Nippon Budokan against GHC heavyweight tag champions at the time, Takashi Sugira and Satoshi Kojima. Uh, Maru Ken lost that match, but um, I adore that match. Uh, granted, like I was always going to adore that match, I think, but there's <laughs> so much it was made for me, but there's so much uh -huh. joy in that match. There's some like really great little throwbacks to just like Maru Ken and everything that they um, are together when they're a tag team. I think it's a really, really good, fun match too. So um, definitely revisit that one if you haven't seen it since it happened, but just a good fucking match. And there's so much to be said about like how Kenta feels when he comes back for these, these bigger Noah matches. Right. So um, a really good way to start off the year for him there, even with the loss, he was on the pre-show uh, King of pro wrestling Rambo. That was on January 4th um, for new Japan and wrestle kingdom. He did his special little walk down the ramp. Um, he loves his bits of course. And then um, on February 1st or no, excuse me on February 11th, actually um, he lost, 
lost yet another singles match against Tanahashi at the New Beginning in Osaka. And I actually forgot about that entire program. But then in going back and looking, I remember that they put him right back into another program with Tanahashi, which he wound up losing. And I remember being frustrated about that. So that was interesting to think about again. But from there, from uh, February 18th, um, he defeated Fred Rosser at New Japan's Battle in the Valley in San Jose, California, to become the strong openweight champion. Um, from February 24th to February 26th, he had his first like impact appearances, which were pretty interesting. He had some tag matches. Um, he lost a world title challenge to Josh Alexander, who was the reigning champion at the time. Um, so that was pretty interesting, too. He was getting to do some stuff in America that was different for him, getting on impact. He was doing more bullshit bullet club stuff in Japan for a while too. <laughs> and then uh, March 11th, um, Sonata defeated Kenta in the second round of new Japan cup in Nagoya. This was a very good match. And I also remember loving the promo afterwards. So if you haven't thought about that match in a while, or you missed it, definitely go back and watch that match. It was pretty good. March 30th, um, he defended the strong title against Minoru Suzuki in an Impact New Japan joint card in LA. I believe that was during like the WrestleMania weekend type of stuff because that same night he teamed with Brian Keith against Tom Lawler and Chris Daniels for a WrestleCon appearance too. April 15th, he defended his strong title against Eddie Edwards in Washington, D.C. I was actually there in person for that. It was very fun. And then um, more Bullet Club tag bullshit in Japan. But then May 3rd, um, uh, 2023, uh, Hikuleo defeated Kenta for the strong um, heavyweight title or strong openweight title, whatever it is, in Fukuoka. Um, this was really weird because then by the 21st, Kenta won it back from Hikuleo in Long Beach, California in a better match. But those Hikuleo matches were not very good at all i'm not a fan of um hikuleo's brand of, of wrestling i'm just gonna be honest june 3rd 2023 kenta defeated uh nick wayne in seattle washington to become defy world champion and then july 5th 2023 kenta dropped the strong title to eddie kingston this was a powerful match this was like happening during um new japan's two-day um like july for oh, right. yeah, yeah, weirdo yeah. celebrations. Yeah. I don't know. Independence Day weird shit. Um, <laughs> really bizarre. He had, it was really weird. He had a tag with Ghetto on the fourth, and then the fifth is when he had his actual like title match with Eddie Kingston. This was a very, very, very good match. Um, if you missed this, definitely go back and watch that one. Um, they had a very powerful finish. Kenta is just a fucking good storyteller. Like, I don't know what else to tell you guys. And then that takes us into July to August, which was the G1. Um, he had stellar matches with Okada. He's always good with Okada, but also that great Okan match I will talk about forever because it was such a- so good. And the backstage <laughs> was amazing. The backstage was so good. And then Kenta appeared on a joint impact New Japan card on August 20th in Philly. And then like hasn't been back to Japan since then. He's still defied champion and defended it in England and Washington again. He appeared in Paris, Ireland, Canada. Um, he had a match for Impact in Illinois against Chris Sabin. He did appear as Bullet Club at a Texas New Japan event on November 10th um, and most recently tagged with Chris Hero at West Coast Pro. Um, so he's been keeping himself active like as a true freelancer. And I think what we've basically been able to surmise for a while is that 
he is like I think he's always been a freelancer I don't think he's ever been truly signed by Japan so he's finally kind of doing what he's been wanting to do which is go around and just do freelancer things but it's really odd to not have the status update of like when are you coming back to Japan because usually he does the on for a tour off for a tour and he comes back home to Orlando for like a month at a time um so it's usually like off on for a month off for a month with um New Japan but this is the longest um that I can remember since he's been with New Japan that he has just been like he did one show for them in America and has no one said anything about him coming back. So it's very odd. Um, he's made maybe three um, posts on social media, like two on Instagram, one on Twitter that allude to him maybe being a part of the Rambo this year for Wrestle Kingdom. He's not been announced as being part of the Ariaki show for Noah, obviously, which was a huge disappointment for me. It was pretty crushing, actually, to not have him on the card. So... It's been interesting, to say the least. Like, he's had these little pops of success in being able to take the strong belt, whatever that even means these days. And then, you know, he's done very well for himself with the Defy belt, and he's been able to perform in front of different groups of fans and travel all over the place, which is really good. But I don't understand the way that he's used in New Japan at all. It's disappointing. I don't really want to get too into speculation, I guess, because we're we're not going to really know what Kenta is doing or wants to do until he tells us. But I will say that it was really crushing to see um, Shibata just kind of signed, I guess, with AEW. And then Kenta QRT'd it and said, like, there just seemed to be some finality with them not being able to finally have that fucking match that we've been building towards for years between them. Um, as if there'd be something blocking them being able to do it. Like even Kenta in this freelancer status, not being able to come into ROH yeah. and just fight Shibata. And that felt very crushing and very odd. And again, like I don't want to speculate like too much because it's just so hard to say like what we're doing and, and what what he's doing and He was making a lot of comments about like, you know, I'm home with West Coast Pro. But like that was also around the time that Punk was coming back to WWE. So I don't know how like tongue in cheek he was being. So all that to say, I have no idea. Like, I I don't want to speculate too much because we have no idea what his status is with New Japan. We still have to see if he's going to show up at Wrestle Kingdom. But I'm so disappointed he's not on the Noah card, which I don't think is even a very strong card or a good card to begin with for him to not have been able to get on the card. I can't make sense of it. And I just don't agree that Kenta is like not the type of wrestler you pay money for, that you bring in for things. Like when he has the right people in front of him, he's brilliant. And I know that this will be somewhat controversial if depending on how big a fan you are of New Japan, I just don't think most of the people that he fights in New Japan are that talented. So yeah, you're not getting like the best of Kenta through that. You're getting mostly bullet club bullshit shenanigans and nonsense matches and um most of the people that he fights on a regular basis are not um not that good um but when he fights people who are truly talented he delivers good matches i can't really say anything more than that because like his decision to be in new japan is his decision and i'm not going to argue against his decision he clearly makes decisions based off of what works for him and his lifestyle and his family and everything else but i am disappointed I want to see him more. I miss watching him really wrestle. Of course, like you can watch his indie matches here and there if they're available, but it's just not the same. It feels like we're in a weird limbo period with him. So it's a really weird place to end in 2023. 
Yeah, I think you you really said it because as you were listening to this, I just sort of had that like, I miss him um, feeling. And I think that's really what it comes down to. And I, I don't really understand why he's so conspicuously missing from this sort of Wrestle Kingdom weekend or New Year's spat of shows or whatever we're calling it. But um, yeah, it, it feels like a waste. The only way I can ever like rationalize any of it is by speculating, by saying things like, oh, well, maybe Noah's saving him for a bigger show than Ariaki. Maybe they'll do Budokan in the spring. You know, it, it, that's there's no point in speculating on that. It's just a waste right now. And that's, that's what there is to say. Um, I do think, you know, he's finding his, you know, I am Noah in that same way that we were talking about with Nakajima, where he's, you know, traveling and being that guy that gets these indie bookings and being the freelancer that he's always wanted to be. And there's a lot to be said for that. And that is really great, but I don't understand why new Japan doesn't use him. Um, I just, I don't, I really don't. And every time he gets anything at all, he makes headlines, he gets, he's everywhere on Twitter, he gets international attention. And we've said this before time and time again, um, that it just doesn't add up, but it's, the math still isn't mathing. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to say like, I know that people have a hard time conceptualizing this because, um, you know, in everyone's minds, like, you have to be um, like the goal for a wrestler should always be wanting to be in the biggest arenas in front of the biggest amount of fans and making the most amount of money. And like, yeah, in theory that tracks, um, I guess, but like Kenta has maintained that like for him, like he doesn't care about the size of the crowd that he's in front of. And I think people are often not forgiving or very caring in terms of like what he experienced when he was in WWE it's very hard for people to have empathy for him because of like a myriad of things that go into that entire time period. But I think he like experienced things and this is just me talking, you know, but I think he experienced things that we are not going to just be able to understand and square. Right. Like I think that he experienced enough things where for him being in front of a crowd of a couple hundred people who are like invested in what he's doing is way more interesting to him than, um, you know, being in front of a sold out arena. Right. Like, I think that like, we are going to have to go with God on that with him. And I don't think that people are always going to be able to accept that or understand that in him. I think that a lot of people have also spent a lot of time not listening to him when he's been speaking about how he felt and his experiences coming out of WWE. And there's also stuff that we're privy to and not privy to. And there's also shit that I'd love to read in his book if I could ever get a solid translation of his book where he's talked about things, you know? So I think that, that there's a lot of stuff that probably plays into um, a lot of his decisions that won't make sense to people, but it is what it is. At the end of the day, he has to be happy. And I think that's probably the hardest thing is that it's really hard right now to tell if he's happy. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like I said, we can hope and, and like you said, go with God, but um, I just hope him happiness. That's really all it comes down to. Me too. Hi guys, it's Alicia. 
I'm sure you're not surprised to hear this, but this episode ran incredibly long and I made the decision to cut the episode into two parts. So this ends part one and part two will pick up with Goshiyazaki, Keno, Manabu Soya, and then our end of gear discussion. So thank you very much for your patience. I hope that you enjoyed part one and part two will be out in a few days. Thanks so much. Bye.